Welcome to the podcast It's dedicated to making you a faster cyclist, the Ask a Cycling Coach podcast presented by Trainer Road. I'm Coach Jonathan Lee, and we have with us today Trainer Road and Cannondale's Amber Pierce. Good morning, everybody. Oh, oh she's, muted. she's muted. Sorry. Good morning, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> Off to a great start here. <laughs> we have, I have had my coffee. <laughs> <laughs> we have Squid Bikes and Trainer Road's Ivy Audrain. How you doing, Ivy? Hey, good. How are you, Jonathan? Doing great. Happy to have you. And then we also have, of course, our head coach, Chad Timmerman. Hey, everybody. Good to have you, Chad. Uh, I'm excited for this one. Good to be here, Jonathan. We're going to get into some deep dives this week. And one of them, uh, well, actually, so every week, to be fair, in the planning meeting, we always, you hear uttered multiple times, that's a good question. But this one, I feel like we heard that quite a lot. So Hmm. we have some really cool ones, and Chad and and, and Amber and and, and Ivy have prepared really well for it. So I'm excited for it. We're going to talk about artificial sweeteners. We're going to talk about DIY racing because... Oh, unfortunately, all of us are probably looking at our events with a bit of questioning and hoping that they go off on our calendar, but we're still in the throes of everything where we don't know if they'll actually happen. So we'll talk about plan B and how to get that plan B in place. We're going to talk about nutrient timing as well, because a lot of you have questions about that in one form or another. So we're going to try to just focus it on the principles rather than you know, give you 17 tennis balls to chase with that one, but it's going to be a great, uh, great podcast. Uh, if you're listening to this now on YouTube, thank you so much for joining us and give us a thumbs up. That helps a ton. That means more people are going to see it. You can join it in the live chat and ask any questions that you have. And hopefully we'll have some time to get to them at the end of the episode today. You can also go to trainerroadcom slash podcast, and you can share the podcast from there, ask your questions that you have for us and do all those different things. And of course you can go to trainerroad.com if you want to get faster. And let's be honest, if you're listening to this, I don't know why you would not want to get faster. We all do. So, uh, with all that said, um, a one piece that I want to say, I just want to say thank you to our awesome copywriters. They're always putting out amazing content on our blog. And if you're listening to this, you should absolutely be listening to that. And you can even sign up for the blog mailing list. So you can do that and please do so. We'll end up putting a link down in the description below on whatever app you're using to listen to this. And you'll be able to click that and see and go directly to that, uh, that mailing list. And the successful athletes podcast is the other thing to mention. We have fantastic episodes. Uh, we had an episode with Jessica Kipfer last week. She like she, her tide just rate, just like sits over four Watts per kilogram all the time because she's such a dedicated athlete, but she does crazy sports like adventure racing and she's done duathlon. She's done Ironman. She's done mountain biking. She's done crit racing. She's done grand fondos, endurance gravel stuff. And she carries a really like high stress career as well. It was a really cool conversation that we had about all the different things that she does to be consistent throughout everything. So check that out. Uh, we have another episode next week coming out that once again is with an athlete that is very impressive with their consistency. And so tune into that one. It's going to be great. Uh, that's trainerroadcom slash S A P or just search for the successful athletes podcast. Okay. Let's get into, and I'm probably saying your name wrong or you're pulling a Bart Simpson on me and I don't realize what I'm saying right now, but Feech, I hope that's how you say the name. Uh, this one says I'm new to trainer road and religiously binging this podcast and great job guys. If it weren't for you, I would probably keep wandering in a virtual world. We're glad to help you. <laughs> he says, uh, to motivate myself, I'm training to compete. And he says this in quotes against my friend on June 21st. I enrolled in a plan and I'm doing well so far in the medium base phase or mid volume base phase, I assume is what they're talking about. Uh, two days a week of core strength with a personal trainer as well. We plan to race in a flat park for about 30 kilometers, which will equal about 20 loops. So this kind of sounds like an industrial park crit course, right, Chad? Yeah. That's what I get from it. Yeah. With a semi-closed. 
Uh-huh. Hopefully. <laughs> Hopefully closed. Uh, says a few sharp turns in the loop so you can say the course is more of a criterion, but only with two competitors, which definitely makes it kind of not a criterion, but more like a match race, uh, which will be interesting because I think, uh, Ivy, you probably have uh, some thoughts on that with match racing. So my friend is 170 centimeters and 65 kilograms, 270 watt FTP. While I am 185 centimeters, 85 kilograms, and I only have a 204 watt FTP. And I say only just for the comparison's sake, not to, dimin- uh, not to diminish the, the high level of a 204 FTP. Uh, so he says also his bike is superior to mine as well. I checked on best bike split data and currently it seems I will finish seven minutes after my friend. My only advantage is that Criterium is not his thing. He's more of a time trial and triathlon athlete. So considering I won't be able to close the physical and fitness gap, where can I learn strategies or train to specifically close or best close this seven minute gap? Should I train more outside on this specific course and learn to cut the sharp corners? Should I use special gear like an aero bar, special helmet, lighter bike, etc.? Should I specify or tune my core strength training? He uh, finally says it would be great if you can give brief guidelines and perhaps refer me to some relevant sources or resources. Uh, cheers. Uh, Chad, uh, maybe we should tackle strength training first on this one. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So <clears throat> Feech, uh, I don't think it's a secret that I take issue with the term core strengthening <laughs> and, and it's not, it's, it's no slight against people who, who use the term so much as I think it's, uh, it just kind of narrows the understanding of what we're talking about. I prefer trunk, uh, simply because when, when we talk about core, I think everyone thinks about the midsection and if they if they get any further out than the, the, the rectus abdominis, the six pack, then it maybe just includes <laughs> the low back and the core as it's, you know, that's the term, but it, it, it's, again, it's not very district restri- uh, descriptive. Sorry. The trunk, however, I think incorporates everything we're trying to get at, which is basically everything safe for the limbs. So now we're thinking about the shoulders and the hips and the integration of the body between those two points. And then the limbs just layer on top of that. So if, in fact, your core strengthening is only targeting your midsection and not your trunk, then I think you should absolutely revise it. Um, I I have a feeling that's not the case. You're working with a trainer. I'd like to think that that trainer has a good sense of what you need as a cyclist and is uh, adjusting your training accordingly. But this did provide an opportunity for me to just clear up a couple things that we've harped on or discussed so frequently that I want to make sure there aren't any misunderstandings. And one of them is lifting heavy. Uh, we always talk about the benefit of lifting heavy and how it translates to improve cycling performance. And, and that's true. That's just what the science tells us. And, and we can see the carryover anecdotally and it, it's real. There, there's no denying that, but it's not to imply that lifting heavy is the only way for you to benefit yourself as a rider when you enter the weight room. So think of, uh, it, it's an exercise that maybe you do, but probably nobody does, but it's simple and it conveys all my points here is a single dumbbell overhead squat where you take a dumbbell, you lock your arm out overhead and you squat all the way down and touch the floor. And and, and really everything kind of takes care of itself because if you do anything wrong, that dumbbell's coming down, your posture is <laughs> going to get all wacky and it, it just won't work. So if you can do that, that single thing, you're going to get in touch with everything that I think is necessary with trunk strength is you form coordination between all your appendages through that, that, that kinetic chain that we're talking about through the shoulders, down through the midsection and through to the hips, you improve your fatigue resistance for your body in general, not just, not just the legs, not just your 
abdominal muscles, you learn, interestingly, relaxation. And this is something that's kind of unexpected. When you, when you actually uh, achieve legitimate trunk strength is that when you're on the bike, you're no longer as reliant on your arms as you used to be. So it's a lot easier to stay relaxed and just kind of drape yourself over the bars because your midsection and your trunk is doing what it needs to do. So you, you, this is, this helps you start to learn how to steer your bike with your body and less with your arms. And, and in doing so, you, you just learn this level of relaxation that carries in so many beneficial ways to being a bike racer. And then another thing I wanted to clear up is we're always, it seems like we're always poo-pooing the, poo-pooing the idea of added mass. Like, <laughs> that's a funny word. Every time you add a little bit of muscle mass to your body that somehow it's going to come at the detriment of your performance. When the fact is a little added mass will probably benefit most riders, especially if you're exchanging it. And I'm not talking a direct exchange. You can't change fat into muscle, but if you ditch a little bit of adipose tissue, you add a little bit of muscle, your body composition changes, but your weight doesn't. Even if your body composition doesn't change and you just add a little bit of muscle mass, the benefits of that additional mass are, are vast. I think beyond the understanding of most people, they think I want to be as light as possible as a cyclist. And I want to do it with minimal amount of muscle. When in fact, a little extra muscle can go a long way in terms of making you a better cyclist. Mm. First off that just, just some obvious things, strength out of the saddle. When you get up and stand and your body has just that little extra bit of muscle, the, the coordination, it, the, the, the power transfer to the pedals. I mean, just how well you ride out of the saddle is one reflection of how strong you are in a general sense. Crash defense, a little extra muscle on the body. Never hurt anybody when it comes to, you know, coming in contact with the ground. Pete and I can both attest to that. And we have many times. I don't know. I don't know if Pete's ever crashed out of a race. I haven't. I've crashed many times in a race and I've gotten right back in that race because, you know, my body was resilient, had a little extra padding on it. Um, Mm -hmm. And and then capacity. What about adding a little extra muscle mass to your legs? I mean, the muscles that actually drive the pedal stroke, you can only push those fibers so far before you need to add, you know, make those fibers bigger, make them capable of more work. So you need to increase your muscle capacity and a little extra mass goes hand in hand with that. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that's the strength training. I'm just going to get my two cents in terms of your race, um, before the experts take over. First off, have you decided whether you're going to race together or separate? Because if you're racing at separate times, it's going to all come down to pacing. So pacing, 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 and yes, cornering, but not cornering in that you have to dive into the turns and, and be aggressive. Like you are off the front of a criterium rather you need to find the fastest line through those corners. And this, this goes back to whether or not this is an open or closed course and how heads up you need to be. But ideally, yes, you're going to corner well. And in this case, I do think best bike split is super useful and is probably going to, going to bear out. Mm-hmm. And sadly, you're, <laughs> you're probably going to lose. I'm sorry to hear that, but or I'm sorry <laughs> to say that, but it's, it's, it's a sad fact if we're just looking at numbers. And then secondly, if you're racing or uh, on the other side of that, if you're racing at the same time, just poach the sprint. Just, just just, hang in there. Obviously, you guys are going to work together to some extent, or it's going to take you literally all day to get to the finish line <laughs> when one of you decides to sprint past the other. So, you know, work hard, work effectively. But when it comes down to those closing laps, make sure that, you know, you're in the draft and you're planning only to out sprint your friend who is, you know, on paper, the stronger rider. Mm. Yeah, good, good points. And it is probably a really important thing for us to say first. Hopefully this is a safe or enclosed course and be heads up, even mm-hmm. if it is 
that's one rule. Number one of DIY racing in general is we have to remember that even though we're trying to, you know, make the most and use our fitness, we still have to be safe. So with that disclaimer in place, <laughs> Ivy, what are your thoughts on this? Um, cause you've had experience with, you know, match racing, that sort of stuff. So. Yeah. And two up sprint tactics are really tricky as a skill to refine because there aren't very many scenarios in which you get to just roll into a finish with one other person. There's the odd criterium finish or road race finish where you are just sprinting with one person, but there are still too many other dynamics there, like the impending pack behind you. So the chance to just sprint with one person is pretty rare, but you see those opportunities on the track in match sprints or um, at the end of an elimination race specifically. So for those who don't know, an elimination race on the velodrome, it depends on the size of the track, but either every lap or every other lap, they eliminate or pull from the race the last rider to finish the line. So it's pretty cool, but then you end up at the at the very end with just two or sometimes three riders um, sprinting it out at the end. And it's pretty fun, and there's a lot of cat and mouse and dynamic, and a lot of it, and this, this applies to our athlete that we're answering right now, it depends upon A, what kind of rider they are and what kind of rider your opponent is. And that kind of takes a lot of wherewithal to know who you're racing and know yourself. So, um, if he finds that he's a more explosive rider, you can play it to your advantage by trying to control the race for a slower speed. Um, knowing that that big first jump that you can create at the beginning of your sprint will create a gap that is a super discouraging to try to close down and B, you'll be really hard pressed to if you're not also an explosive rider. Um, so on the other side of this, if your opponent knows this, they may be trying to put the pressure on and keeping the speed pretty high just enough so that you aren't able to create that space in your initial sprint, um, which should also be their tactic if you're not a sprinter to keep the pressure on them um, so that they don't have, you know, the kind of rider that just has like a couple big matches the more speed and pressure you put on them, the less likely they are to create space in their sprint. Um, but, uh, yeah, it should, it's also important, um, in this pickup race scenario to identify that it's not a controlled velodrome where there are rules and regulations about how you can move around the track. Um, and we don't know what kind of, you know, close course this is, if it's an industrial park or like a park park, like, could be dogs and kids and you know so um it can you can get like caught up in the cat and mouse part of sprinting but it's important to realize that like things can change while you're running into the sprint and you should be heads up like not just cars and people but like stuff on the road um so yeah be heads up in that final sprint for sure um yeah and which also leads me to like the terrain and course leading into the finish um Totally depends. If you're a sprinter and the the finish that you've identified is less than 300 meters from the last corner, you for sure, no question, want to be first into the last corner. Um, if you have like a really, really, really long run into the finish, like that can be really hard because you can get impatient and want to lead it out and go too early and end up leading out your homeboy. <laughs> so you don't want to do that either. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, and then it also depends upon whether this is a if you're considering it like a draft legal um race or if you're doing it alone. That will also totally depend upon how you play it out in the end. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
I, I'm going to second that. If it's a draft legal race, I would work on training a quick acceleration so your friend can't drop you from the front of their draft. Because <laughs> if you know that like in a straight up drag race time trial style that according to best Blake split, they're going to be putting a lot of minutes into you. You can, you know, you, you got to take advantage of that draft and, and save as much energy as you possibly can throughout the whole race. So, um, but again, that depends on the style that you guys are planning to race. And that's something that you'll have to decide ahead of time. Something that I think is interesting with this thinking of the video that Nate's or all the videos that Nate has had where Amber, you and Pete have critiqued his racing uh, talking about the sprinters gap and talking about positioning at the end of the race, I would absolutely go back and look at those videos that we have on our YouTube channel from the race analysis, because, uh, Amber and Pete have provided super good insight and you'll also get to see Nate improve and, and Nate make the right decisions, that sort of stuff. If you watch that enough, it's interesting how you start to pattern that. And then you'll start to reflect like the good habits that you're watching. It's, it's a great way to be able to learn. And then once you get out on the bike, you can actually put that stuff in practice. Uh, and, and that's something like Chad, uh, you were never like the sprinter per se. However, you are a very capable sprinter, uh, it put a get matched against a, a, a field of normal cyclists in a crit, right. Uh, where you be, you were a very capable sprinter with that. I want to talk about the things that we do when it is a two up scenario where we actually mess up. Like how do we position ourselves poorly? What are the mistakes that we make when we go up against one other person? What are the things we should avoid? One thing that comes to my mind that I can kick off with this is having fear of who's going to drive it, letting that steal your focus from what you need to do. Like the fear of like, okay, well, if I'm not going to be up here and usually you have a pack chasing you, so you're worried about getting caught and everything else. But in this case, you don't have to worry about it. You can literally, if you can track stand, that would be great. Um, cause you can make your, your, your friend wait as long as they need to. <laughs> But I find that's one thing you get so concerned about something else that you forget about the task at hand. Um, that's, and that's the main thing I'm guilty of any, any other thoughts come to mind on where we, how we might screw up in this scenario. I think another way of saying that is you want to be really patient and that can be extremely hard. So, uh, especially in a scenario where you can be drafting off from one another, you know, being really patient and not feeling, letting, letting your, uh, your opponent make the first move and possibly also make the first mistake or observe what their first move is and kind of get a sense for how they think that they're going to win the race. And you can kind of play off from that. Um, another mistake I see some, a lot of people do is ride down the middle of the road. So in, in a bike race, let's say you attack, if you attack hard up the right side of the road, you know, that nobody can come around you on the right. So all you have to do is be aware of what's happening over your left shoulder to know whether or not somebody's coming up on you or counterattacking you or coming up to help and ride with you. So if it's a two up race, um, and you want to have an, you know, you want to keep an eye on where your buddy is and you happen to end up in the front somewhere, get to the side of the road. So you only have to look over one shoulder to see whether or not he's going to be coming around you. That's, that's one little thing you could, you could keep in mind. Good tip. Anything else from come to mind on this Ivy? Yeah. Um, I think a big mistake you can make, uh, when you're trying to win a sprint is being reactive instead of proactive at the wrong time. Like mm -hmm. there's a mentality of feeling like you're waiting for something to happen. Um, it's, it's tricky to know that you need to be patient and also wait for someone to make a move if you're, if that's important to the finish. Um, and it's hard to compartmentalize that from, uh, just, feeling like you're on the back foot 
and like running through all these like, well, if they do X, then Y, and if they, are they going to this or that? And Mm. mentally, mentally you've kind of already lost. So you can still wait for a move to happen and be on the defense or on the offense rather, if that makes sense. And not doing so can kind of mentally take you out of the game. Mm. Yeah, for sure. Chad, did you have something to add in on this? Yeah, uh, I, there's a danger, and this is definitely going to depend on your personality type, but of overestimating your own capabilities. And mm-hmm. and, and there are situations that can kind of push you into that fairly, where uh, for, for a long while I was good at riding people off my wheels, such that the time that we, by the time that we got to the line or close to the line, I could sprint from the front and probably win because I, I ground people into the ground. But if there's anything sort of organized uh, and, and you find yourself up against a true sprinter, it's very eye-opening. There was a period of time where I, I, I took pride in the fact that I could ride I could ride my sprinter off my wheel and, and I would end up in front of my sprinter even though I was the lead out. But that's because I took the last, you know, however many kilometers at a rate that was just completely burying him so he didn't have a sprint. But in situations where he came to the line with me with that punch still at the ready, it destroyed me and made me look like a fool. Mm. It actually made me look like I was doing my lead out really well. But in my in my head, I was like, oh, he just beat me. So, yeah. That. I, I was kind of along those lines. It's really important to know what you can do at the end of those races. So then you can be proactive with it. Um this is, so I, I earlier said, if you watch a lot of things, you'll start to actually like practice those things, even subconsciously. Well, if you watch Mark Cavendish sprint, you're not going to start sprinting like Cav. So <laughs> there is a line to be drawn within there. Right. So we, we, um, and that's, that's a danger. And you see that a lot with like cat five racing because the finishes that are really exciting to watch these sprint finishes and like grand tours, we see how they unfold. And then you see a cat five racer, like waiting for that moment that they've seen on TV to happen all the time. And it just never happens because you're in a cat five field. You're not in the pro Peloton. Right. And, but then a lot of the time you'll see them do a tactic that they've seen Mark Cavendish do. And he was behind Mark Renshaw. Right. And like, and, but that doesn't really work when Mark Renshaw isn't in front of you and you're not calf. So it's really important to know <laughs> what you're good at or what you will actually do. Like what Ivy said is so important about being mm-hmm. proactive. It's about knowing what you can do and then having plan a, B and C at the ready for that. And you're ready to make those things happen. And if they don't happen because of somebody else, you're going to make them happen anyway. But if you don't know what you can actually do, like, are you a good sprinter from 20 meters out, like super short? And like your final kick is the thing that's going to help you. So you stay in the wheels for as long as you can until the last moment. Or are you a person that likes to go with 250 meters to go? And that's your strength. So it's important to figure those things out. And hopefully you're doing some sort of a draft legal race where the, all of this actually comes to fruition. And if so, go out and practice those scenarios. It's less about practicing the course to know exactly where to cut the corners, like you said, and more about how how that match, how that marriage is going to work between your skills and abilities in that course, I would say. Amber, sorry. I just want to follow up on what Chad was saying, because you have the risk of being overconfident and overestimating yourself, but so does your opponent. Mm. And you can kind of keep that in mind. And there's always the chance of playing that mental game of enticing your opponent to become overconfident and to overestimate their abilities. And if you're really familiar with their strengths and weaknesses, Mm. especially psychologically, you can play that to your advantage. 
The last thing I'll say is you probably don't want your competitor to listen to this podcast. So that would be my last tip. (laughs) Tell them it broke. It doesn't work. This episode doesn't work. (laughs) Um, Something something along... Oh, yeah. Go ahead. That, that's an interesting point, though, because uh, if you've raced category categorized races for any period of time, you've probably had the same people on your team that you will at one point race or vice versa. And that's kind of what we're talking about here because you're racing your friends. So you probably have deeper insight into what motivates or demotivates your friend than most racers are going to have. So you can absolutely mm-hmm. play that to your advantage. And he did mention in this case that the, that the friend is more of a TT triathlon athlete rather than a crit athlete. So if it is a heads up sort of a thing, you have a great advantage right there in the sense that they may be less comfortable riding around another rider like this. So, you know, when you come by, don't give them a lot of space, not saying do anything dangerous, but just stay close to them. And if they have a rider close to them and they're unfamiliar with that, they're unfamiliar with that, that's an advantage because they will feel uncomfortable. And that's, that's really the key. Don't make it unsafe. Just, you know, uncomfortable. Just, you know, go ahead. Tip. Ivy, sorry. Don't wreck your friendship over this pickup. Yes. Call a truce for 24 hours. Your competitors for 24 hours. After that, <laughs> you can make up thereafter. What happens on the bike stays on the bike. Yeah, exactly. Because you can uh, really rattle someone that is not, that doesn't feel, you know, they're not like criterium savvy and don't feel super comfy. You can shake them up and That's do true. some do some damage. So be careful. You can, you can, you can kill two birds with one stone here. Like just be super encouraging and motivating for the first half of the race and let them burn a lot of matches, feel really confident, you know, and just build them up. Yep. <laughs> let them go. Um, I want to talk a bit about training for this sort of event and then also the equipment stuff. Cause this was part of the question too. So, uh, training, it really depends if it's going mm-hmm. to be just you and you're going to do like a, a TT style race where you're not racing at the same time, 40 K TT that's that sustained power build and 40 K TT is what you need to do. Uh, that's going to build the sort of sustainable power that you need to be able to pace at a high level and be able to maintain that throughout. Uh, we have so much information on TTs. If you search, ask a cycling coach podcast, time trial, you will get a wealth of information where we talk about all that. However, if you're going and this is something where it's truly going to be like a heads up match race, then I really recommend the crit plan. Um, general build would be a great thing to have. So then you're ready for a number of different things. Uh, so that's what I would recommend there. Uh, equipment wise, you mentioned that your friend has a, a higher end bike, but the frame and even the wheels make a lot less of a difference compared to something just like an aero helmet and a skin suit. Uh, I know it might seem weird to show up to a crit with like a full on bullet helmet on, like you're in a time trial, but honestly, if it's going to make you faster, who cares? Right. So, um, as long as it's safe. So aero helmet and skin suit are the two biggest grabs you can get in terms of aerodynamic advantage. If you don't have access to those things, it can even be as simple as like safety pinning your Jersey. So it fits tighter. Um, like, you know, behind you, all you have to do is just make it so that it's take it in an inch or two with a safety pin and run those safety pins up and down. And you're going to have a tighter fitting Jersey. Boom right there. That's a huge benefit. Um, and that's like relatively zero cost. I don't know the going rate for safety pins, but they're pretty cheap. So, uh, so that's one thing you can do right there. And then for the helmet, don't alter. I see a lot of people like altering the position of their helmet and thinking like what part is more arrow. Do not do that. Just wear it how it needs to be worn. And hopefully you can borrow something that's more arrow if you don't have one. 
I think caffeine, like on nutrition side, yes, fuel all of your training coming into it with carbs. Like we always talk about on the race day, make sure that you have carbs. I know it's not a long event, but once again, it's not about avoiding bonking. It's about improving performance. So take that in taking caffeine. Somebody um, went ahead. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Sorry, Chad. <laughs> um, and then also just one last thing on the course part and on cutting the turns, you're going to figure that part out really quick, especially if you're doing uh, a lot of laps like you're doing here. Honestly, I don't think there's ever been a race where somebody's won because they were taking on a, on a crit course like this, somebody's won because they were taking the corners tighter than other people or something like that. That's not why you win the race. It's definitely a consideration you want to have if you're doing a time trial effort to just make the course as short as it needs to be right. Instead of making it excessively long, but it's not going to be a big difference in making or breaking. Um, so yeah, that's, that's all I have on that section. Scott's question. Let's do it. Uh, Scott says, uh, y'all are amazing. And thanks for all you do. What has been the harshest criticism you've received over the years? And what did you learn from it? This is a great question. Uh, and we're probably going to talk about this one from personal experience on quite a lot because, um, not a whole lot of, uh, studies I should say that we're going to cite on this one, but much more just personal experience and what we found. Uh, I kind of want to talk first on like giving criticism and receiving criticism and how to do that productively and how to think of that. Uh, it's also really hard. Like, so first things first, if you are in an emotion, a highly charged emotional state, it's probably not a great time to then share your opinion of others. And (laughs) what I'm looking at is all of us post race, uh, you know, post race, you finish a sprint and you're really upset. And I hear that all the time and I'm, I've, I've totally been guilty of it too, where after the race, and I'm really upset at that person for something they just did that I perceived to be wrong. That's when I'm so eager to give that criticism. And if I look back, I don't give that criticism from a balanced state of mind. I shouldn't do it because it's not productive. It's trying to help me feel better. It's not trying to help that person in any way. If, if I'm honest and you know, so, um, make sure that you're in some sort of, uh, a balanced state to be able to <clears throat> give criticism productively and effectively. Um, and also, um, criticism itself, it can be productive <clears throat> or it can be harsh. And I, I, I have a hard time thinking that harsh is some sort of, uh, is the same as productive. In fact, in very few cases, personally, at least I can think of where I either <clears throat> gave or received harsh criticism and it was productive. Uh, harsh usually doesn't have anything to do with productive. Usually I can't think of a situation where it doesn't at least. (laughs) So, um, and then, uh, I think another thing that you have to recognize about giving criticism is you have to ask yourself in giving this criticism, am I abusing somebody? And I know that that sounds, uh, perhaps judgmental, but I'm asking for everybody to ask themselves internally about this and think about it internally. And, and because a lot of the time, you're the seasoned rider and your friend is not, or you are known as the rider that has experience and somebody else is not. And it's super easy to put yourself in this position where suddenly like you're criticizing everybody all the time. And it actually like builds up these kind of like patterns where you almost like reinforce the fact that everyone's lower than you. It's bad. So, um, so there's that part, but also I am so grateful for productive criticism. Uh, I've gotten so much of it just from being on this podcast and it hasn't been direct to me, uh, but when Chad's talking about something and he's advising athletes, I take that uh, to myself and I think of how I can improve. And it's so cool. 
Um, so that's really helpful. I get so much criticism in every aspect of my life and I try to bring it in as much as I can. Um, because, and then I try to pass it through my own filters to make it productive if it's not, or accept it as it is. So I think that without those giving us productive criticism in our lives, we'd all be really far behind where we currently are. So it's worth saying that, but then I think receiving criticism is so important. You have to consider the source. First of all, um, there's, uh, I'm probably going to butcher the quote, but in most, and actually I'll just paraphrase it and explain it more, but in most cases, when people are giving somebody like demeaning advice or anything else, they're never doing that to help you. They're doing that to try to hold you down. So if a person, you know, and if a person is, is doing that, just remember, consider the source and consider where it's coming from. Um, and then being coachable and thank you, dad, for my dad is a coach by nature. That's what he, that's his character. And he's an extreme, he was a ski instructor for years and a great ski instructor. And he always refined or like reinforced technique and oh my goodness, did it drive me nuts as a kid. And we've talked about this before to just do like the technique over and over. Uh, but my dad really taught me what it was to be coachable and that if I wanted progress, I had to align to that progress more than personal pride. And I had to be willing to accept this sort of stuff. So thanks dad. Uh, I've mentioned that before, but love you. And thank you for that. So, um, and then you have to consider all the feedback that you can get and then take what you can. Um, and then I think uh, you have to think, what can I get from all this? So Nate, uh, it's sad that Nate's not on this episode right now. Um, because Nate, I feel like is such a good example of this, uh, for me, Nate, uh, is always looking for all different types of feedback that he can get and trying to bring it in. Like he's almost like hungry for it. And he looks for all of the feedback, call it criticism, call it whatever it is. And then, uh, I've, I've found that Nate has been a great example of me for like putting a good filter on that and finding the productive aspects of all the feedback. Cause some of y'all are pretty mean to Nate sometimes on his Strava and other stuff, because he takes this position of being like an athlete that's learning. And I see y'all mansplaining to Nate endlessly, and he always takes it really well. He's really good at that. So I can do better in that regard. So those are just my thoughts, giving criticism, receiving criticism. That's like a kind of a prerequisite. I feel like for everything else that, that we'll talk about here, but I'm also, I've never been a professional athlete and I, I haven't had like, you know, my livelihood and a coach and a team director and all that stuff. And that's an entirely like different dynamic. Um, Ivy, you have had that. Um, what are your thoughts on all this? Well, my first thought, Jonathan, you're a professional athlete, like, no, way to be humble, but come on. <laughs> no pro um, card here. Yeah. <laughs> so. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think a big part of being a coachable athlete in person is knowing that it is okay to receive criticism, but to not let it completely destruct you. Um, that compartmentalization is super critical in uh, – yeah, preventing that sort of toxic comparison that can not produce any real productive changes or improvement. So it's important to separate um, whether it's constructive or not the criticism from its source and understand where it's coming from. Like you mentioned, Jonathan, um, like if it's if someone's hollering at you because you just want a field sprint and, you know, maybe like step back and be like, where's where is this coming from and why? Or like, I'm sure Amber can empathize with like racing with fellas. Like, 
some guys just like really don't like that you're there and in the mix and will like find a way to criticize you for it. And it's really important to be able to step back and consider where it's coming from and why before deciding to apply any changes, um, to your training or yourself. Um, so I think that having a really clear vision of your sense of self in the writer that you want to be, um, really helps, uh, and having like season goals and career goals and like knowing what you want to do as an athlete, um, helps kind of separate that criticism. And for me, journal journaling really helps with that, um, at the beginning of a season or a training block or like knowing beforehand what kind of skills I want to work on. Like I know that I need to work on X, Y, Z. So, but I know that I'm really good at cornering and really good at running into a finish. So like being sure of myself knows that if I'm jumping in a men's race and some homeboy rolling in for 30th, like criticizes me at, in the last lap of a race, like I know where it's coming from and I know that it's not me. Um, and that feels different from just like not accepting any criticism. So yeah, I find that journalizing journaling helps me vet those comments and recommendations with better clarity um, yeah. And I guess that applies to a lot of things, not just like racing, but also things like body type, like strangers will tell you that like, Oh, you don't look like an X or Y kind of rider. Um, you don't look like a sprinter or like you look like you'd be a climber or this and that. And so, you know, knowing what kind of, uh, rider you are and where your strengths are helps you vet those comments as well. Mm, yeah. Chad, that. <clears throat> You, you have an interesting like approach that you want to take with this one too. Cause we get, uh, we get criticism and, and it drives us forward here on the podcast too. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> so I'm, I'll, I'll get more specific with it. Uh, the, the question was what's been our harshest and you know, what do we learn from it? Pretty consistently, my criticism comes in the form of misinterpreting research or being told that I don't understand how to, read research, et cetera. And to some extent it's been, you know, I won't say painful, but it hasn't been the most motivating thing, but when it, mm. most of it doesn't come at me in that harsh manner, most of it is encouraging. I especially like when researchers reach out to me via email and say, you know, here's what you got right. And here's what, you know, could perhaps use a little bit of additional attention or here's my, my take on it. It's, in the cases where it comes across constructively, obviously I, I gain a lot from that. In the case where it comes across harshly, the tendency is to shut off from it and, and develop that so-called thick skin, which I'm here to tell you is some nonsense. No one has skin thick enough to completely mm. tolerate that stuff. Some of it sinks in. That's just a sad fact. But by and large, most of my criticism comes at me through constructive uh, intentions and, and it's helped me in the case of reading research to recognize that this is something that's important to what I do. And personally, I want to be better at it. But it's also <laughs> shown a light on the fact that reading research is a difficult thing. I almost equate it to learning a language and that you, you never, you know, don't know Spanish and then do know Spanish. It's a process and it takes time and there are steps and you get better at it and you're never really done, Right. Um, th there are some non-parallels where I think maybe once I've had a got a good handle on reading it, it I'll retain it kind of like math. You know, you learn it and it's pretty much there, whereas language needs to be, be maintained. But to, to help people understand how, how difficult it is to try to read research, I mean, you have to recognize that 
research, it isn't truth. It isn't fact. I heard someone say the other day that science proceeds from a position of ignorance. And, and then that's, that's it, right? We don't know anything and we form questions and hypotheses and suppositions. And then we try to bear them out or break them, break them down. And the longer they stand up, the stronger they get. So it's never like a, you have the answer, go forth. It's always a, a process of further research and, and, and further arguments and counter arguments and, and, and whatnot. And, and research is as much about questions as it is about answers, right? And the answers are never really answers because it's always a question. You're always trying to fortify or disprove a hypothesis. So it's difficult is what I'm saying. But anytime I get this criticism from whatever angle, it just makes me kind of dig my heels in and want to try a little harder and get a little better at it. And it's only benefited me. Mm. Awesome. Amber, how about you? Um, I think a one thing I want to start talking about with this is this concept of radical candor. And this is something that we embrace a lot here at Trainer Road. And you may have already heard this term, but it's the idea of being really honest and forthright with somebody to a constructive end. And one of the ways that you can distinguish this from someone who's just being a jerk, for example, is the degree of personal care that's going into the delivery of the message. And so when you look at radical candor, there's one of the illustrations people often use is a, is a quadrant. And so on the verticals, uh, sorry, on the vertical Y axis, you have increasing personal care. And on the X axis, you have increasing direct challenge, right? And mm -hmm. kind of the, the best quadrant to be in is the one where you have the most personal care and you're being challenged directly, or you're the one that is challenging directly. And I think that that's, that's the sweet spot. And so when you have somebody who genuinely cares about you and their feedback is coming from a place of genuinely wanting to help and be constructive and to empower you, sometimes it's hard to hear honest truths, but if it's coming from somebody with, with that intention and that framing, then it can be really, really constructive. And you contrast that with somebody who's coming at this with very little or no care for the person and they're directly challenging you it's not necessarily constructive and sometimes it can be really damaging. And another way of thinking about this is especially when it comes to sport, when you're giving feedback to somebody, you have to separate the person from the action. So going in and saying, Hey, let's, let's look at the timing of those attacks. You know, it looks like you could probably time your attacks better. They're not saying, wow, you're a terrible tactician. What an awful athlete. You know, what are you doing out there? They're not attacking the person. They're addressing the action and the specific things that will empower you to improve. And so I think that's a really important distinction as well. And the best coaches and directors are the ones who do that. They care for the person. They're not going to put the person down, but they're going to give you honest feedback about what you're actually doing and empower you to improve constructively. So I'll share a story of a time. This was a really formative. I, I will remember this for the rest of my life. But when I was about 11 years old, I joined the swim team and I was really excited and I thought I was crushing it. I thought I was just nailing it. I was showing up to every workout. They said do 100 meters. I did 100 meters. What I didn't understand was that you were supposed to work hard at the thing you were doing. So I was very much going through the motions, but I genuinely didn't understand. I just thought if you said do a 50, I did a 50 show up to work out on time. I showed up to work on time. I was doing all of the things. And my coach finally had that insight that I wasn't putting this together. <laughs> so I remember he sat me down. And by this point we had, we had already established a great deal of trust 
he ended up being like one of my best friends and practically another parent to me. Um, and he was coming from such a place of care and, and he, he specifically addressed what I was doing, not who I am. And he sat me down and he was like, you know, you loaf more than anyone else on the team. (laughs) That was the opener. And I was so confused and he took the time to explain it and what it meant. And it was just this huge light bulb moment for me, which, you know, now that I understood I was empowered to go and actually work hard and, and reap those benefits. And I mean, it was kind of harsh, you know, you loaf more than anyone else on the team, but he wasn't no attacking me a as loafer. a person, <laughs> right? Yeah. You yeah. know, he's not, he didn't say you're so lazy. He uh-huh. wasn't addressing me as a person. He was specifically saying, here's the thing that you're doing. And that was incredibly valuable and formative. And I'm so happy he did that because it put me on this completely different, awesome trajectory. Mm. Contrast that, uh, with, other feedback I've had. So I remember one time as a cyclist, I ended up in a breakaway during a stage race and it was on a really big climbing stage and the break ended up getting decimated. And one of the gals, uh, went on to win the stage and she was phenomenal climber. And some of my, one of my teammates in particular, um, really got down on me about it and called me stupid and said I was an idiot for going in that break because obviously I shouldn't have gone in that break because I was clearly 30 pounds heavier than everybody else in the break. How is that constructive? You know, she's attacking me as a person. She's not addressing the particular issue and my body weight really had nothing to do with it. And the funny thing was the very next day there was, it was the queen stage, another big climbing stage. And I was in the front group climbing right next to her. And the whole time I just kept thinking to myself, 30 pounds, huh? 30 pounds, huh? Just kept looking over at her. (laughs) It was very motivating. But this is to say that harsh does, there's a difference, you know, harsh feedback isn't always tough love. And, um, being able to take harsh feedback doesn't mean it's not, it's not the litmus test for whether or not you are a tough person or you are a tough athlete. A couple of other examples I just want to throw out there. A teammate of mine in college, uh, went to our coach. She was, not the most talented person on the team, but by far the hardest worker, the most dedicated, hung on to every word that the coaches said, did everything down to the letter. She had a really tough time, um, didn't perform to her expectations at her big taper meet. So she went to the coach afterwards seeking constructive feedback. Hey, look at what went wrong. What can we do different in the, in, in the future? And he looked her dead in the eye and says, I don't know how to taper fat girls. Mm. What do you do with that? How incredibly Mm. damaging is that? That is not tough love. That's not radical candor. There's no care for the person there. There's no pointing out a specific action that can empower the athlete to do something better. So I want to just point out that there is a huge danger in confusing verbal abuse with tough love or constructive challenge. Um, And, you know, we talked about coachability and I think that there's, there's two sides of coachability. One is a really, really positive side, which is where, The athlete is seeking to improve. They're seeking opportunities to learn and they want to get those insights from people who have the objective perspectives, the authority, the experience to help impart those things to empower the athlete. Those are really great things, but there's a dark side to this too, especially in the era that I was growing up. (laughs) Um, And I think that this is changing a bit, so I can't make a blanket statement, but I will say when I was growing up, the messaging that I got from my peers and kind of the culture around me was it is so important to be likable 
In fact, that is the most important thing. It is so important to be liked and accepted by your peers. And then when you combine that with this idea in sport of being coachable, then you, you have the danger of teaching young athletes that it's okay to accept verbal abuse, even when it's not constructive criticism, even when it's not this radical candor that's coming from a place of care. And then you have athletes that, you know, want to prove that they're tough. So they're just going to take it. And and it's going to, when you're getting that kind of really negative feedback, that's about you as a person, it starts to diminish your own self-efficacy, your self-esteem, your self-worth, and all of those things start to diminish. And that's not constructive. That's not helpful. And in some cases, it can end up being grooming for even more egregious abuse. And so I just I want to make sure that when we're talking about harsh criticism, that we're really, really clear that there's a huge difference between Mm -hmm. expressing care in a constructive manner that's empowering the athlete versus just coming in hard and attacking the person, because there is a huge, huge, huge scary dark side to this. Um, there's a really great article by Mary Kane, who was a a runner, I think for the Nike team and, and the, the verbal and emotional abuse that she sustained there that completely railroaded her entire career. And again, it stems from this idea of, Hey, I want to be likable. I want to be the good athlete. I want to be the coachable athlete. I'll do whatever the coach says. I'll endure whatever verbal abuse, abuse the coach is dishing out. So one of the ways that you can combat this is to surround yourself with a village. Always surround yourself with at least a few people who have your best interests at heart, at heart, no matter what, who can objectively and with genuine care help you consider the source if you're unsure whether somebody's feedback is constructive or being abusive or manipulative. Yeah, that's a great point because then you get the balanced perspectives, right? <clears throat> we can't just always rely on our own perspective because we will we'll get lost in the weeds and we need course correction, but having those people around us. You know, and, and is, is, as far as like specificity for me in terms of what has been the harshest criticism, honestly, I can't think of criticism that other people have provided as much as myself. I'm a really, really, really harsh self-critic. Like um, if I was to verbalize what goes on inside my head a lot of the time as an athlete, my goodness, it would be terrible. Um, it would be unpublishable. So it's, it, and that's just, but that's, and I, I'm, I'm always trying to get a better relationship with that and thinking about how, like Amber, like you've mentioned so many times, how to be your own best ally and how to help yourself. And I, so I think that I've always been really harsh on myself and yeah, terrible things that I've said to myself, but I've also, uh, strangely, I've learned to kind of like assign an identity, like Amber's mentioned, even last on last week's podcast, assign an identity to that harsh inner critic that I have the overly harsh one. And instead, uh, I've developed a relationship where I can take positive things from that. So they can continue to be harsh. That's fine. Um, all in, and with time that will go away. However, I can still take positive from it. So, um, so yeah, that's, that's what I would feel like. And, and I think that there's also, uh, there's a link here and producer Aaron, I believe is going to be dropping it into the live chat. Um, a New York times article, uh, from, and it's called, um, I actually, I don't know the name of the title, but it's with Mary Kane there. So, um, the awesome, awesome chat on that. Hopefully that's, that's helpful to all of us, whether we're coached or not, whether we are young or not uh, across the board, I feel like that's a, a really good one. And also thanks to all of you for being a great example. Uh, my podcast host of taking criticism well, so I appreciate it. Reminds me to do the same. Uh, 
Chad, <laughs> very nice. Yeah. Curtsy bow there. Um, uh, Chad, <laughs> this next one is absolutely within your wheelhouse. It's changed my training entirely. And it's from your workout text. Uh, Kevin says, uh, Hey all, I'm a relatively new rider to trainer road and also a new rider to riding on an indoor trainer. I picked up a kinetic rock and roll too from a buddy who was not using it. Great, great find, by the way, that's a, one of the most solid trainers in terms of the, the resistance unit there stays the same forever. doesn't like fatigue. Um, they're just solid. They have a really good, um, the curve is consistent and represents what you experience when you ride out on the road, solid find. So, uh, Kevin says I fought riding on a trainer or rollers for years and was a staunch outdoor only cyclist. And now I am converted instead of riding maybe two days a week. I'm on the bike five days a week and I love it. Awesome. That's the convenience factor is what one of the hugest values. Uh, one thing that has really piqued my interest is belly breathing something I discovered reading Chad's notes on several trainer road rides. I've researched diaphragmatic breathing and it has been a game changer for me since in the past, I feel like I was always a, and he says in close <clears throat> chest breather. My question is, can the TR podcast team elaborate on belly breathing and the mechanics of belly breathing and how to condition your body to make this your go-to breathing method? Uh, keep up the great work and be safe. Chad, it's all you. Okay. <clears throat> so Kevin, a lot of this stems from, uh, <laughs> I don't know why I'm embarrassed to admit this. I shouldn't be. I, I was a Pilates instructor for a period of time and it was actually rather lucrative and it was a good foot in the door in terms of uh, all the directions I went after that. But, you know, a, a fundamental tenet of Pilates training is, is, is on the breathing. And, and it just opened my eyes to the fact that uh, I wasn't breathing very well, quite simply. And I was already a cyclist and I was performing reasonably well, nothing, nothing exceptional at the time, but it did open my eyes to the fact that, wow, there might be a performance benefit in breathing better than I do or differently, which translated to better as I found. Uh, first mm -hmm. off, th there are a lot of books. This is a pretty hot topic has been for the last couple of years. Um, I've read all of them. Well, all the ones that I'm going to list, and I'm sure there are others out there, uh, breathing for warriors, the oxygen advantage breath, the Iceman, and the Wim Hof method are, are, t are the, the five that I've read. Something to be taken from all of them for sure, even if it's just how not to do research. And I'm not going to name names, but one of them is horrible when you go look at the bibliography. Um, it's embarrassing. And then I got to say, for me, I enjoy the books that focus more on effective breathing than the ones that target CO2 tolerance. And that's a personal bias. That's not because there isn't efficacy with that CO2 tolerance, but it's because it is a miserable undertaking. If you've ever tried to improve your CO2 tolerance, the drills they give you are nothing short of torture. And I'm, <laughs> and I'm not exaggerating. It's literal <laughs> torture. It's terrifying, mildly to extremely. Yeah. So, and then secondly, let me get out of the way what we're not going to cover today, because these are big topics. When we talk about breathing, it can go a number of directions. This isn't going to be about inspiratory training. It's not going to be about mouth versus nose breathing either. Both of those, however, are good topics, and I would like to dive into them later. But to cover them here today, uh, in addition to everything else we got, it's just too much. They're big topics. So instead, we're going to focus on belly breathing. So first off, 10,000-foot view of what we're, what we're talking about here, and this is basically one half of ventilation. And if you remember last week, talked about ventilation is just air movement in and out of the lungs. Okay, don't need to get any more scientific than that. And we're only talking about half of that, which is the expiration. So, so exhaling that air out of the lungs. So the purpose of exhaling by and large or entirely is to blow off what is a mildly acidic gas, a byproduct of cellular respiration, carbon dioxide, CO2. 
And in doing so, we maintain one of the many acid acid base balances in our body. And in this case, it's uh, in our blood and we do it via the lungs. And of course, the brain, the brain's always involved in basically everything. And the brain, in this case, dictates our ventilation rate. So it actually senses CO2 accumulation in the blood, senses that acid base misbalance and adjusts our either our respiration rate or depth of respiration or the combination of the two. So as CO2 accumulates in the blood, our acidity rises, the blood acidity rises, which means our pH drops and our pH is always maintained in a very narrow range. The ventilation rate adjusts to that the, the rate of that accumulation. And so basically breathing comes down to a couple of things. First, we're blowing off the carbon dioxide and we're intaking O2. And one is no less important than the other. So, so you could just view proper breathing as a balancing of carbon dioxide with oxygen. And I'm not talking about an even balance, just a, you know, balancing those two things in order to maintain a particular pH. Hmm. Amber, you want to say something here? Oh, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) So caught up in it, right? (laughs) This is riveting. Yeah, so good. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I, I just love to settle in for Chad's deep dives. Um, no, this is kind of cool. So uh, one of the things I learned a long time ago is at sea level, because every breath that you're taking in, you're saturating all of your, uh, you're, you're saturating 100% with oxygen because there's plenty of oxygen in the atmosphere, partial pressure and all that. So at sea level, CO2 is the primary determining factor in driving your ventilation rate. But when you get to altitude, when you take a nice deep breath, each of those each inhalation is not actually saturating you with O2 because there's not as much oxygen available. So O2 becomes the limiter, Um, but it's not necessarily going to automatically change your ventilation rate. So one of the things that you can do to help mitigate the, I don't know, challenging effects of altitude, shall we say, is to consciously breathe a little bit quicker. Like you don't want to hyperventilate. (laughs) You don't want to go overboard with this. But if you consciously shift your breathing rate just a little bit more, it can really help to mitigate some of those effects of altitude. Hmm. Awesome. Good tip. Good stuff. Okay, so now let's get on to specifics. So we're talking about belly breathing. So this is a distinction between horizontal and vertical breathing and uh, different terms for that. Horizontal is also synonymous in this context as diaphragmatic breathing, as you mentioned, and belly breathing, which is the term I use because it's just, uh, I think it's more descriptive than anything. Say diaphragm, people don't necessarily know what you're talking about. You say belly, everyone gets it. Um, And then the other end of that is vertical breathing, which is also termed as apical breathing. And both of those are pretty descriptive, right? Horizontal breathing, outward, apical breathing, upward. So simply more air passes in and out of the body via diaphragmatic breathing. There's just no no two ways about it. And at least half of my goal with all the belly breathing recommendations and cues that I make in the in-ride text is exposure to this fact. Learn how to to breathe fully. Learn, recognize that what you're doing right now may be enough, but it's probably not. You're probably not using your actual breathing muscles to breathe. So as your diaphragm contracts, it rises. <clears throat> and this kind of uh, facilitates the exhale, which is what we're talking about. And then as it relaxes, it falls and it, and it inhales, which can be a pretty passive process. Uh, exhaling, however, and, and, and again, what I try to coach with these recommendations is to make that a more active process. So when you belly breathe, the middle or what's termed the cural portion of your diaphragm descends and it creates more room in your rib cage. So you effectively get wider in general. And and you see evidence of this when you look at all the best cyclists, especially the time trialists. 
And, and, I, and I key in on time trials here because when you see the best climbers in the world riding up a hill, it's not as easy to, to tease out or to see evidence of that belly breathing because they're seated, seated so upright. But when you put a time trellis in aerodynamic position, you can actually see that belly almost fold over their upper legs. I mean, it's really mm-hmm. evident and it, it's, it's not flattering. We'll get to that. It's, it, it doesn't look <laughs> good, but it's absolutely useful and performance enhancing. And up until, uh, well, I can't remember what the name of the the documentary on Netflix. Ooh, yeah, that was great. Movie the movie star. While. Yeah. The movie star the name docu- of documentary. It's fantastic. Yeah. But, but yeah. within that, Alejandro Valverde at one point is doing like a comparison with another one of the younger writers and, and showing that he has tremendous range of motion and force capabilities with his diaphragm in particular. I mean, he goes mm-hmm. from completely wide and bloated to gaunt and, and creepily narrow And it just shines a light on the fact, I mean, this guy's been doing it for a long time. He rides at the highest level. He's a very capable, competent rider. He's won basically everything. But his physiological capabilities aren't just limited to his muscles and his oxygen uptake. Well, you know, in in, in a manner they are because he breathes ridiculously well. He has tremendous control over those breathing muscles. And -hmm. what we're really talking about here, at least when it comes to the exhalation portion of ventilation is, uh, if you're familiar with the terms, transverse abdominis, your rectus abdominis, your six pack and your obliques, both your internal and your external. So these are muscles and they're not the only ones, but they're largely what facilitate exhaling. And, and what's interesting here is you can cultivate quite a six pack. I mean, obviously you need to be lean, but in terms of the, the muscle tissue itself, you can cultivate quite a six pack by simply breathing really well and breathing actively and forcing those exhales. I mean, I, Mm-hmm. I, I rarely do abdominal work, but in my leaner periods of life, it, it's there because we use them. Well, you know, if you breathe with your belly, you use them and those muscles do become rather conditioned. Mm-hmm. Um, so <clears throat> what we're really talking about or what I'm describing here is breathing circumferentially. That's, that's, mm-hmm. that's really what we're after. And again, it's an unflattering thing. If you have the, the fortune of a six pack, it goes away. Your trunk looks wide. It looks thick. It's, it's not appealing from, from the side view. Yeah. And this is, this is a big reason. I think a lot of people don't belly breathe because they're subconsciously sucking in all the time. And especially when we're wearing spandex, right? People feel Mm. a little more self-conscious. Like it's very revealing stuff. Um, but you gotta remember, like you're there for the performance, not, not to you know, look a certain way in your spandex. So I think that that's a a habit a lot of us unconsciously carry, which can be Mm -hmm. really um, counterproductive when it comes to breathing effectively. The cool part about this too, is that as you get better at it, you will visibly be able to tell and you can work on it during your workouts Mm -hmm. when you're Mm -hmm. training and glance down and look at how you're breathing when you are doing any sort of work interval. And I know I look totally different than I used to. At first it was all high in my chest and in my shoulders, you know, that's like where my breath would be evident and it's, and it really wasn't getting much, but then after Chad's workout text telling me to belly breathe, now my belly expands. And if I'm wearing a skin suit, I become Santa temporarily and then it goes back, you know, and that's okay because Santa's suddenly fast. So who cares? Like it's a, it's, Mm -hmm. it's a huge, huge difference. And even if you're listening to this right now, you can safely do this. Even if you're driving, start practicing like what we're talking about. 
And if you do breathe like that, you'll notice you just feel better in a natural state. Even, um, it's, it's just, it allows your body to function more properly. And boy, when you're training, it makes a huge, huge difference. Profound. Like it really extends like those V those ventilatory thresholds in terms of not their actual state, but how quickly you reach them. Bad breathing can make you reach them a whole lot earlier. So <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. There's even more. So kind of, kind of what we're talking about, the other end of that is the whole di- idea of drawing in and embracing is effectively what you're doing. And that totally has its utility, but in its particular context, I mean, that's typically limited to something where we're trying to reinforce posture because it's bearing some load. We're trying to lift something and we need to brace. And that makes sense. Or we're trying to, you know, in the case of Pilates, you're laying on your back and you're trying to lower your legs to a point without breaking that neutral low back posture. There, there are things that you can benefit from when you draw in, but they do not translate to, to proper ventilation. So the sad fact of this is that our diaphragm is both a postural and a breathing muscle. So harken back to the days of being in high school and, you know, running, uh, being forced to survive a mile when you've never run before in your life or a quarter mile or that warm up in the morning, all sorts of awful experiences to be tied to, to PE and, and the fitness grand pacer test. Oh yeah. Such a no, great no, way to can... make people fall in love with being active. <laughs> yeah. How far can you reach on the V sit? That's your yes. worth as a person. You're an athlete. <laughs> yeah. We're, we're going to teach you all about humility. Here it comes. Okay. So, but, but when you do those things and they bury you, right? I mean, you're winded mm. beyond a point that you've probably been winded before. <laughs> and you know, the, the compulsion is to rest hands on knees and to recover. And then you have the, the, the coaches who at the time, they thought they were doing what was proper saying, stand up, just walk it out. When in <laughs> fact they're asking the muscles that breathe and the muscles that support your posture to work at the same time. So when you lean over on your knees and you can take the burden off your diaphragm as a postural muscle and just let it breathe, there's a real benefit to be gained there. If for no other reason, then it doesn't make you hate working out. So this, what we're trying to do is, is exploit the ventilatory cavity to its maximum capacity. And and in doing so, this translates to really relaxed abdominal muscles, right? Uh, On, on that, at different portions of the inhale, exhale cycle. So it doesn't look good, but it's useful and you need to know how to do it. So apical breathing, when we do that, when we breathe more vertically, we're incorporating or asking the auxiliary muscles to become primary movers in, in the case of breathing. So we're asking the muscles in the neck and the shoulders to facilitate movement of air in and out of the lungs. That's not what those muscles were designed to do. They might be designed to contribute to that, but they're not designed to drive it. When we breathe diaphragmatically, we're asking the muscles or we're getting in touch with the breathing muscles and letting them do their jobs. So these are the muscles in the abdomen, in the thorax, you know, the, the, the body. Let them mm-hmm. do what they're designed to do. Actively task them with that. Yeah, mm. and how you breathe. So whether you're breathing diaphragmatically or apically, these, these practices, they have implications for the vagus nerve, which means that they have implications for how you are shifting between <clears throat> parasympathetic and a sympathetic state. So um, it's just something to be aware of. This is probably, you know, to a whole deep dive on that too. Mm-hmm. But um, doing really deep belly breaths has a really restorative, calming effect um, that's usually, I, th- I think it's, it's mediated primarily through the vagus nerve, but it's just, it's really interesting and something that you can experiment with. 
Mm-hmm. It's like an instant I, vacation. I swear. Like start mm. breathing that way and you feel so relaxed. It's like, it's, it's like, it's so helpful. It, it It's, it's a big thing that really helps. My Garmin watch always reminds me to breathe throughout the day. I have like that reminder and it'll like ping me and it'll run me through like a 30 second breathing exercise or something. And during mm. those times, you know, you can breathe incorrectly and it doesn't do a whole lot, but if you breathe correctly, man, it's, it's truly like it completely makes me feel like I'm re rebalanced, so to speak. Mm -hmm. It's just Mm -hmm. huge. So this is a really rare topic where we're actually talking about something that you can do off the bike right now while (laughs) listening to this and see the benefit. I just want to point that out really quick. That's cool. So in the midst of, and after every single deep dive. So yeah, (laughs) yeah. I mean, ever since Chad brought it up, I was like, Oh, this whole segment I've been doing. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So (laughs) <laughs> to close this out, the the other half of my my reasoning behind incorporating this into the inride instructions is to kind of convey that maybe not this directly, but indirectly, is that ventilatory fatigue is real. Those mm-hmm. are muscles in there, and and they do fatigue, and they can be conditioned, which is mm-hmm. you know a topic I, we're not going to talk about because it is a big one. But if you recall, uh, many podcasts back, we talked talked about a physiological phenomenon called the metaboreflex, and which is effectively just when metabolic signaling actually restricts physical activity. And one of the reasons this restriction is imposed is because of diaphragmatic fatigue. And I, and I linked to a study that I won't dive into, but if you're interested, go, go check that out. But in, within this study or, you know, in line with this idea is that when we get heavy arms and heavy legs, you know, our extremities are basically underfed due to, to, to blood flow prioritization. I mean, it's far more important Mm -hmm. that we breathe than drive the pedals or, you know, (laughs) do bench presses, whatever it is. So So weird. (laughs) (laughs) Our our breathing muscles are higher on that hierarchy and no one needs to be, needs that explained to, to them why that is. But when we train the breathing muscles specifically, and we can do it within conditioning, we can also do it outside of con- conditioning and you know, make it really specific to them. We're training to make them more efficient. And we talk about efficiency a lot. We're just trying to get more bang for our oxygen buck. And, and this carries to our diaphragm as well. It may be an involuntary muscle, but it is under voluntary control and it does condition like a lot of other muscles. And then Briefly, you asked about how we can make this kind of an automatic thing. Well, the, the road to automaticity is a long one. I mean, and it's, it's with anything. It, it requires repetition. It requires consistency. Initially, it requires constant or a conscious effort. And Amber's described that process in great detail to where it becomes less conscious and eventually there's like four stages we move through. But the, the, to, to put it another way, it's practice, practice, practice. Right. And that's why you'll see these instructions crop up throughout so many workouts, because even within a a single training plan, I might harp on this eight out of 12 workouts within that training plan, because this is the point that needs to be driven home. Mm. Yeah, this is this is I mean, listen to Chad. We all know he's wise. The more you can cultivate a better awareness of your breathing and training, the more automatic it becomes. And we talk about this all the time. The more habitual, like the more good habits you can build, the less cognitive load it will take to do Mm. the right things when it comes to race day or your event day. Um, And that's just that that is such a huge performance enhancer is getting into good habits that just like 
like Chad said, become automatic. And a great example of this is let's say you're a road racer. I know not everyone listening is, but as an example, if you're in the middle of a road race, I mean, it's intense. You're trying really hard to mentally focus on what's happening in the race, how you need to respond strategically. You're trying to remember to eat. You're trying to position yourself within the field. It's a lot. So if there's a lull in the racing, whether that's because a break is off the front and the field is content to let it go, or there's a lull between attacks, it's a great time to just remember to take some conscious deep breaths, just like we've all been doing during this deep dive to calm your nervous system and reset a little bit. Cause it'll recharge your focus and your ability to go again when the racing picks up again. And those are amazing habits that if you can just, if that can just become automatic, I mean, wow, like what a huge advantage right there. Absolutely. Yeah. Great points. Solid, actionable advice out of that one too. So cool. Um, let's get into rapid fire. <clears throat> Forgive me. Uh, Bill says, I'm learning a lot about feeling on the bike and thanks for focusing on this. This is perhaps a dumb question. He says, but I bet others have wondered the same thing. It's not a dumb question. He says, if I burp while I'm the trainer, my heart rate always dips a few beats for a few seconds. Why does this happen? Thanks for answering our questions. Even sometimes when the answer isn't going to make anyone faster, <laughs> we're here for it. <laughs> uh, we'll just do not no deep dive here, Chad. Uh, but no. you, you have an answer on this one. It's, it's basically what Amber just described. So with the, the vagal nerve and our vagal tone, we're deciding the emphasis. So whether it's a sympathetic, which is the whole fight or flight or a parasympathetic, the rest and digest, we can shift that emphasis simply by breathing. So on an inhale, you kind of facilitate the sympathetic emphasis. Heart rate comes up a little bit on the exhale. You facilitate or steer things towards the parasympathetic emphasis and heart rate declines a little bit. So what I'm guessing here is that when you burp, it's, it's effectively an exhale and, and heart rate dips a little bit because you know, you're shifting that emphasis. Hmm. Now we all know. Our big questions are answered. <laughs> Daniel says, <laughs> are all watts created equal? Is there any difference in physiological benefit to riding on flats versus climbs? For example, would my muscles benefit more from doing an hour of sweet spot on a five to 6% climb in contrast to an hour of sweet spot over a flat course? Amber, let's see you. I mean, I'll just say it feels different. It really feels different. And it, it, you, you have a, d a slightly different position on the bike just because your center of gravity is in a different place. Uh, so there is a specificity to the motor pattern differences between being on a climb or an incline versus being on a flat. So I, definitely there is a difference. It, it's not huge, but, mm -hmm. um, but you'll feel it for sure. You'll be using some muscles slightly more relative to other muscles and it's subtle, but if you really pay attention, you'll notice it you're producing the same amount of work. You're doing mm -hmm. that. Yes. That's the same. Right. But in, in terms of how that work is made, it is, uh, there's an, it's almost the same, but there is some difference within that for sure. Enough right. of a difference that you'll definitely notice it. Yeah. And, and, and for what it's worth, I see a lot of athletes just do their, if they're training outside, they'll just do all of their work on climbs, which heck, if that's the specificity that matters on race day, go for it. But I think it's really valuable to do both. Just uh, a little like uh, two cents there. Chad, uh, yeah, you had some thought on, oh, sorry. Oh, I was just going to follow that up and just say it. mental and physical component too, right? Like if you mm -hmm. have the confidence because you've been doing hill repeats and you know you can put out this power on a hill, when you see a hill, you're going to be a lot less intimidated by it, right? Than if you've been doing all of your training on the flats and vice versa. So it's good to mix it up a little bit, if only to remind yourself that you're perfectly capable of handling high power output on any terrain. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Interestingly, this is an area where it's as much about physiology as it is about physics. 
And anytime I hear that word physics, I pretty much tap out. But I did. There's there's so much information on this particular topic. This is a very hotly contested. I mean, people love to talk about this in forums. And it comes down to inertia, gear ratios, uh, peak crank torque, cadences. I mean, all these things are folded into one paper that I linked to. And I'll quote from it. Crank inertia increases as a quadratic function of the gear ratio. Right. So there it is. I mean, now, now you know. Quadratic. You said it. You said it. <laughs> Mic drop. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, <laughs> physics. <laughs> if you, if you, since this is uh, you know rapid fire, not a deep dive. Go ahead and dig into that paper. Sure, we'll link to that. Uh, Ethan DIY says deep the, dive. Yeah. <laughs> yeah seriously. <laughs> Have fun. <laughs> uh, Ethan says for those of us who aren't racing or may never enter a race, but would like to get into the best shape possible on the bike and are interested in trainer road. Can a training plan be made for those particular people? The answer is yes. And it already exists. We have them. They're called enthusiast plans. If you use plan builder, it won't include those plans. You can also just use plan builder as well. And just say you want to train for a specific type of cycling and it will train you for that. Uh, it's not going to train you to be a racer necessarily, right? It's going to train you to be that sort of an athlete. So those are kind of like the two main options, uh, that you can do there. So, uh, anyways, hopefully that, that answers that one. And we get that question, uh, not irregularly. So hopefully that helps folks uh, that have that question. Uh, next one is the ramp test different. If I don't have a smart trainer, the answer is no, it's exactly the same. You will be a bit different because you'll be shifting and adjusting cadence to hit your power targets instead of having your trainer adjust for you. I do all my training on just a pair of standard, uh, rollers. And, oh gosh, if I don't answer what that is, I'm going to get overwhelmed on Instagram with DMS on what they are, but they're the elite quick motion rollers. I should probably just put that in my Instagram bio because I get that question like 10 times a day, but, um, elite quick motion rollers, but they're not smart. So I just shift and, and adjust. And actually, can I take a quick moment right here to talk about a ramp test that I did, um, just, just recently or just this week. So I took a ramp test and in the ramp test, I got almost like a 10% increase. Uh, it's been a while since I've taken another ramp test and I took the first one. I was sick. I had some time off training and then I took the ramp test. So, um, yes, it was probably low, but uh, to be honest, that's where I was. So it didn't matter. And it gave me the accurate training. I had the best training block I think I've ever had in the past five or six weeks. Like it was so good. Um, but I just want to remind everybody how hard you have to push in the ramp test. Like it doesn't hurt until the last five minutes, but you have to really require a lot from yourself mentally. It's less, it's almost like less, I, I don't know about anybody else, but when I'm doing a ramp test, it's, it's so fatiguing up here. Like my, mm-hmm. like my, my nervous system thereafter and my brain just felt like fogged for the rest of the day. It was pretty <laughs> rough. So I just want to remind everybody, if you're taking the ramp test, have the ramp test coming up. Um, you really like, like you can do it. First of all, you can get this much out of yourself. You're going to do it. You're going to do a great job with it and you have to require a lot of yourself and it's okay. You can do that. So, but that's how to get the best ramp test result that represents where you're at is to require a lot of yourself in that moment. I probably had six quit points where I was like, yep, I'm done. And one of those hit when I hit my old threshold. So that just shows you, I felt like it was a bad day, but, um, I just kept saying, no, it's okay. I'm doing this. I can keep going. No, it's okay. I'm doing this. I can keep going. So anyways, quick thoughts, enjoy your ramp test people. They calibrate your training and it makes everything so great. So, 
Uh, Darcy says, rapid fire. The year is 2025 and the world is in a strange form of apocalypse that only allows you to stay fit by doing one specific trainer road workout and one specific strength training movement forever. Which ones do you pick? That's hilarious, by the way. <laughs> this, <laughs> I like, these are the rapid fire questions we need, right, Chad? These are the ones we've been waiting for. I love this question. This is exactly what I had in mind when I suggested a rapid fire segment. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, Chad's idea. So yeah, send us all of these truly important questions that we have here. So, um, mine, mine that I would share, and I think that producer Aaron's going to be actually be able to show, show the workout to all of you on the screen, uh, which is pretty cool. So, um, my, if I had to pick a trainer old workout, I would pick Williamson plus four. Uh, it would give me, because considering the fact that we're in apocalypse and I'm probably not going to be racing, I just want to touch up on all the systems a little bit here. So I like the fact that this is a VO two one that kind of ramps higher and gets shorter. It fills you with confidence, this sort of workout too, because as it gets shorter toward the end, you can actually do it and you feel less, you don't feel any more beat up, but you're doing bigger Watts and big Watts make the, make the ego go boom. So that's good. Um, (laughs) and then after that, I have nice tempo. So I like that one. That, that would be mine. And then in terms of a strength training exercise, I like Turkish getups. It's like, uh, if I'm talking about something that's going to work all of what I do, it'd be Turkish getups. I'm not going to do a Turkish getup right now on camera. Um, and we're not going to show it because heaven knows if we tried to load that right now, we'll load a YouTube ad instead. So, um, but <laughs> Turkish getups, you can search that one and check that out. That's what I would like to do. Uh, Amber, how about you in this strange scenario? <laughs> <laughs> so my response is inspired by a host family uh, years ago that I stayed with in Visalia. And uh, the host mom's motto was that she rides her bike to kill the time between coffee and beer. So my <laughs> apocalypse workout plan would be to do morning bicep curls with coffee. Then I would do Taylor minus two which is a series of short shorts, uh, VO two. I love this workout. It always feels accessible to me. Always feels doable. I always feel like I really got a lot done and really accomplished something with this one, but it just, it's, it's something that I always, I, I'm never afraid of it. I look forward to it. And then I feel like it's really um, productive. And then I would follow it up with bicep curls with beer. <laughs> A true (laughs) well-rounded fitness plan that we have right there. That's a good training plan. I like it. Yeah. yeah. You're my people, Amber. (laughs) Pete and I have actually had this very same conversation where we recognize we're on vacation when we vacillate between coffee and beer, coffee and beer, coffee and beer. That's your day. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So I'm completely with you. Um, My answer, my knee jerk to uh, favorite workout is Kern, which coincidentally is my fiance's last name, but I just love the structure of that workout. It's on the screen right there. Covers a lot of bases, crams a lot of work into uh, not a lot of time. And <clears throat> for whatever reason, I just like that. I liked it back in my bike class days, and I still love it. Um, and then asking a, an SNC guy what his favorite single exercise in is, is uh, man, I went through, <laughs> I really gave this one some thought, even though this is supposed to be a quick answer. <laughs> Initially, like 30 hour, 30 hours on deep dives and then like 62 yeah. on this. Yeah. yeah. So uh, renegades. And I think that's even in that strength and conditioning mm-hmm. video we did where it's basically a push up with dumbbells. You do a push up, you pull, pull, you do a push up, row, row. Okay. And then I thought, oh, but thrusters are really good too, because, you know, it's kind of what Jonathan talked about. You want to hit a lot of muscles, not that renegades don't, but it, you, you grab weight from the ground and you put it overhead and you return it to the ground. I mean, that, that's pretty great. Well, Jonathan, I see your Turkish getups and I raise yeah. you man makers because even Ooh. though not socially acceptably named, they incorporate everything you need. And to, to, to kind of 
pay penance for that awful name. I, I linked to a video with Camille LeBlanc Bazinet doing them. And basically, it's like if you mash together a thruster with a renegade and you do it with heavy dumbbells, which means you can make them really heavy, really productive, really punishing. It's an Ooh. excellent exercise. And if you're going to do one thing, just grab five pound dumbbells and do 20 of those. Then over time, tens, twenties, you get up to the point where you can move fifties for 20 reps at a time. And some workouts make you do this three, four, five times over the course of the workout. You are bulletproof. You'd be jacked. Is that what you think? It's real. It's real. <laughs> I want to be jacked if there's an apocalypse. Sure. I'll take it. Yeah. Um, uh, Ivy, how about you? Okay. So my favorite train road workout is Ebbets. Um, <laughs> I mm-hmm. I don't know if I have a good explanation why. Maybe because <laughs> my ADD likes that I have to pay attention during it. Uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, it feels very attainable, and I like that um, it's kind of like a morale booster. Like it's a mm-hmm. it's a good one for like me, the kind of rider I am, to like know how it translate it translates into cycle cross racing, and to like feel good about knocking it out of the park. Um, Alternate favorite workouts are Pettit because yes. I like to chill. <laughs> Love yeah. Everybody's yeah. so good. Like, honestly, if this was an apocalyptic scenario and, you know, like, screw it, I'm just going to chill and, like, <laughs> no, I don't know. <laughs> What's the point, right? Yeah, good yeah. point. Why are we trying to build fitness anyway? <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then my favorite um off the bike training exercise this is apart from an apocalyptic scenario i love bulgarian split squats um Mm -hmm. and i do have uh, a bit of a lifting background and like those like big olympic lifts are fun for me like power cleans and like big back squats and like big deadlifts are great um but i like i i have some imbalances and have some like injuries to keep in mind and i feel like bulgarian split squat is like a really accessible to do at home without like a big weight setup um and be just fun and like a good way to protect <laughs> my like my injuries and insufficiencies and i just like it and it's really awesome. specific yeah, to, to riding a bike too. I mean, single leg strength mm-hmm. and the coordination that goes with it and a pretty good stretch on the rear leg, all those things. Yeah. I won't show uh, it on screen. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I still think back to when Nate was showing us how to release his IT band and lifted his <laughs> shorts covered leg up into the camera right in front of my face. So yeah, that was great. Um, <laughs> Not thank you, Darcy. Thank you, Darcy, for submitting a fantastic rapid-fire question. Everybody listening so to this, good. We, we need more of those questions. Please submit them <laughs> at trainerroad.com slash podcast. Uh, Nikki asks, I just wondered if you might have any advice on training while pregnant. Thanks so much. So first of all, Nikki, congratulations. Super exciting. Um, and actually, we, all four of us, have no experience with this. However, <laughs> we recorded a podcast with Sonia Looney. And she discussed a lot of this, the Successful Athletes Podcast, episode 12. It's called Balancing Work, Motherhood, and Pro-MTB with Sonia Looney. We're going to link to that. You can find it on our blog, and uh, the episode will be embedded in there so you can listen to it. Then you can also read a fantastic article that was written as well to parallel that that piece. So that'll get you right there. 
kudos to Megan, our fantastic copywriter for writing that episode. So that's, uh, and she provides some great what's worked for her in general principles. Um, the only thing I will say of having, uh, my wife, uh, as we have a kid and having gone through that whole process is it appears to be extremely individual. So, uh, but what an exciting process it is. So Nikki, congratulations. Super exciting. Uh, okay. We're going to jump down to Dustin's question. Uh, this one says, how do zero calorie caffeinated beverages like Coke zero affect energy systems? Does their ingestion have an effect on fasted training? This is once again, a fantastic question. I love this one. Yeah. Such a a short question. I got quite a long answer for you, Dustin. Um, (laughs) so, so first off, this was one of those that, you know, I wondered myself. So I totally went down a rabbit hole on this one, not to be confused with a rat hole. I mean, this was like a mind altering, (laughs) eye opening experience. It was, It was informative on a lot of levels. <laughs> well, Chad, can you first inform us what, like, would a rat hole be if we were, like, actually, no, let's not do that because we'll offend somebody. So, no, <laughs> just, no, no. Let's just get no, I mean, they, people interchange those rat, rat hole being, you know, kind of unproductive and takes you into scary territory, whereas rabbit sure. hole is more linked to Alice in Wonderland and, and wondrous and enlightening in nature. Yeah, that's sure. All that's all I mean. Chad, I, you're, I you're living in 2020. You're living in 2040 and I'm just back here in 2020. Sorry about that. Yeah. So. <laughs> okay. So Dustin, a uh, couple quick answers before I get into the long answer. First off, you're talking about aspartame and the acceptable daily intake is designated or pinned at 50 milligrams. So to put that in context, the 150 pound person, 68 kilogram person would have to drink a, literally 20, 12 ounce Coke zeros. So honestly, I think if you're drinking that many Coke Zeros a day, you have a bigger concern than what the ADI is for aspartame. Um, secondly, keep in mind that a lot of these things have to be observational in humans. So they can only collect data. They can't like con- run an intervention and give people mega doses of aspartame and see what it does to them. So they have to conduct studies on a lot of the times rodent models. And, and unfortunately, their metabolism doesn't carry to humans. So we can extrapolate findings and make assumptions, but largely we have to look at observational data. And my point here is that just because observational data says 50 milligrams is the high end of what's safe, don't necessarily push those bounds. Uh, secondly, these are, we're going to refer to them as non-nutritive sweeteners because not all of them are non-caloric. Some of them have minuscule amounts of calories or energy, and not all of them are artificial. Uh, look at stevia. Um, another term that gets used is low energy sweeteners. We're just going to call them non-nutritive because it is safe to assume that you're not really gaining any <laughs> nutritive value from them. Yeah. Okay. So in terms of energy systems, you probably see where I'm going. If these are non-ish caloric, non-ish energy containing, then there's no muscle fuel. So on top of that, non-nutritive sweeteners are often used as or as part of the carbohydrate placebos in interventional studies. So if they want to see what you know a particular sugar does or combination of sugars or a dosing intake and they need a control against it, the placebo group usually uses an artificial sweetener. So it doesn't say that there isn't anything going on, but yeah. It does say that yeah. we're probably not getting a lot from artificial sweeteners in terms of uh, muscle energy. So so the short answer is that non-nutritive sweeteners are not likely to make you faster. And sadly, that's kind of the end of, end of this, what would be a deep dive, uh, just not a lot of meat on that bone. So instead, I say, let's ask another question. Let's look at, can taste itself be ergogenic? And this is actually the title of a very recent study by Russ Best and colleagues. Where they basically looked at, can the brain impact performance? 
and we know quite well that it can, or, you know, we feel, we all feel quite strongly the science definitely supports it. So more specifically, do taste receptors influence the brain and thereby help us, uh, gain some performance enhancing, uh, uh, outcomes. So the evidence says yes, and it happens via a, a number of avenues actually. So there's, there's the sweet route, there's the carbohydrate route, regardless of sweetness, um, bitter tastings have actually shown some influence on performance, um, thermally uh, different, I guess, everything from menthol to capsaicin. So both ends of the spectrum hmm. have shown ways to affect the brain that actually alters performance. So within this particular paper, <clears throat> Beth, uh, Russ asks uh, or, or cites another paper basically regarding does our central governor you know, our brain have a sweet tooth? And this is a 2014 study by Louise Burke and Ron Mon, and it's actually quite interesting, and, and I link to it because it's it's absolutely worth reading. And a lot of what you're going to hear, or some of what you're going to hear, is, is uh, called from that paper. But to be clear, the focus here is on carbohydrate-like effects during exercise. Okay, but before we get to that, let's talk Splenda really quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, Splenda specifically. So, a uh, 2007 study used female athletes, and they compared sucrose, so you know, actual sugar. Uh, uh, what is that? That's a disaccharide. So uh, what is that? Fructose and glucose combination. But anyway, sucrose right. to sucralose. It's, mm-hmm. it's counter. It's a uh, non-nutritive sweetener counter, counter, which is Splenda. So sucrose v. Splenda. And they wanted to look at the effects on brain activity. So what they found was that the perception of sweetness, so basically the subjective liking of it, was similar across both sweeteners, and it correlated to concentration. So the higher concentration, the higher liking, the higher subjective approval. But more objectively, when they looked at brain imaging, they noticed significant brain activity with the sucrose, the actual sugar, in 10 of 10 regions of the brain. The 10 regions that they were looking at saw activity in all of them, but with sucralose, only activity in three of those 10 regions. And a particular (laughs) importance here is the lack of midbrain involvement, which has a lot to do with motor control. So relevant to us. So one takeaway is that sucralose activates reward circuits, but it may not satisfy sweet cravings. And this is of concern mm. with people who are Ooh. using it for weight loss or sugar avoidance, right? Mm-hmm. This is Another why, ta- okay, that, that, this is like putting pieces together now as to why yeah. they can be so habit forming and and, do the, and become almost like a reliance in, the, in that. It's common to see that in other words, mm-hmm. yeah. For sure. Mm-hmm. Yep. Huh. Wow. Another takeaway is that, that sucralose didn't activate or, or I guess my takeaway is that sucralose didn't activate any part of the brain that makes us go fast. So let's mm-hmm. move on to actual carbohydrates. And and this kind of ties to the whole, this is where uh, my view of just because you can, you know, w- with early morning workouts, yes, you probably can get through that workout, even if you don't ingest sugar prior to or sugar over the course of, you can get through it. If you look back to Oscar Jukendrup way back in 1997, they took a carbohydrate and electrolyte combination and and looked at its benefits over an hour time trial, or roughly an hour time trial at 80% of VO2 max. So basically we're talking about a threshold workout. So an, an out and out time trial. And what they noticed is that there's a benefit in performance during even these short intense efforts, which up until then they had only seen benefits with carbohydrate over more moderate, longer uh, events. But the benefit was not derived from raising blood glucose or carbohydrate oxidation in the muscle. So the takeaway there was that carbohydrate benefits both high intensity and moderate intensity work. And this was a bit eye-opening at the time. 
This study was possibly confounded with the fact that they also had electrolytes in the mix, but I did find a later study where they isolated electrolytes, combined it with carbohydrates, had a placebo, all that. Then they kind of pulled uh, electrolytes out of it. Problem is, is a couple years later with uh, McConnell in 2000, they looked at the effect of carbohydrate ingestion on glucose kinetics. So actually the change in blood sugar during intense exercise of, again, roughly about an hour, they had them working at roughly the same rate, 83% of VO2 max, which is, again, is very close to functional threshold power. The subjects were fasted, and they divided them into a carbohydrate and placebo groups. And in the carbohydrate group, they ingested 84 grams of glucose over the course of this hour with a 6% solution. So we're basically talking about Gatorade or Powerade or, mm-hmm. or aid you choose. And and this kind of <laughs> shines a light on the fact that these were early days, right? This was this was before we had recognized different co-transport, limitations of gut absorption, the fact that the gut can be trained, all this stuff. So they were surprised. We wouldn't be so surprised these days to recognize that only 22 grams of those 84 actually made it into the circulation. So roughly mm-hmm. one-fourth of them assuming that the rest of it was either tied up in the liver or the gut somewhere. Uh, and, and what's relevant here is that there was no change in time to exhaustion, no change in carbohydrate oxidation in the muscle, no change in muscle glycogen use, regardless of placebo versus carbohydrate. So the takeaway was that exercise capacity at this high level, 80, 85% VO2 max may be limited by factors other than energy supply. So it's not even a question of, of what we're intaking. Then just a couple years later, Juken drips back at the wheel with Carter, 2004. They took six trained cyclists, uh, reasonably high VO2 maxes, somewhere in the ballpark of 60, had them do a couple one-hour time trials. And they weren't really doing one-hour time trials so much as trying to do uh, 1,000 kilojoules worth of work. And they directly infused carbohydrate into the bloodstream. And the placebo group or the control was saline. The rationale being that the placebo group's glycogen stores would be sufficient, that it wouldn't make a difference. And what they found was that despite higher blood glucose levels and higher muscle utilization, there were no differences in performance between trials. So takeaway again is that performance might not be limited by carbohydrate or energy supply. Maybe there's a non-metabolic or a central effect at work here. Maybe that for carbohydrate to be beneficial, it actually needs to interact with, interact with our GI tracts and it can't be mm. directly infused. So enter mouth rinse studies. And this is where things get... I think exciting for most people because we've all heard about this and we've all wondered, man, is there anything to this? So again, back to Oscar Huckendrup. He's, he's, a, he's, a, he's a big guy in this realm for sure. Um, My Sports Science, I think, is his website. Feel free to check that out. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of good info there. So they looked at carbohydrate receptors or they considered whether carbohydrate receptors in the mouth might influence performance. And they did so with initially a five-second mouth rinse of either maltodextrin or placebo. And it's important to recognize that maltodextrin doesn't have a sweet taste. So it's effectively, mm-hmm. I won't say it's tasteless, but but it doesn't say... It's really you know, mild. The, yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. And what they found was that they had higher powers and faster times in the group of carbohydrate time trialists for the same relative perceived exertion. Felt just as hard, but they went a little bit faster, had a little higher power outputs. And this actually carries. There was a, a 2014 review you know, 10 years later, Silva and Silva and, and colleagues, where they noted that across, uh, man, how many studies did they look at? I can't remember. Is let's, let's say 20-ish. The mean power improvement for the mouth rinse uh, interventions was about five watts, which you may not, you may say, eh, five watts, that's not much, but it was both statistically significant and it's definitely significant to performance. Because if you relate mm-hmm. that to an amateur rider, 
over the course of something like a four, five, six hour Grand Fondo or a century, that five watts means something. You look at an elite time trialist who's battling for fractions of a second to make it onto the podium or make it into the top 10 for that matter, that five watts means something. Mm-hmm. So the takeaway what? is that improved yeah, performances was- may be due to increased central drive and or heightened motivation, both of those things being important. Central drive a little beyond our conscious grasp, heightened motivation definitely within it. Hmm. I was going to chime in there just with the, the we have a, a post that we put up of the like time save per upgrade sort of a thing. Mm-hmm. And we compared 10 watts, even on 40K TT and uh, 10 watts for that even can get you 55 seconds. So yeah, uh, in terms of time ton. saved. Yeah. So we're looking like, if you look at that, for rinsing your mouth, that's profound. Um, you can tune in, you can check out on our Instagram for, for that post, by the way, I'll link it down below, but, um, and we cover how we actually went through and got all those numbers and stuff like that. But five Watts is not insignificant is the point no, that can be as I, much it, as it half a not. minute over 40 K. Almost. Huge. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I'll take five Watts. A, gonna give me five. Watts? I'll, I'll take five Watts. <laughs> 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 yeah, <laughs> not going to turn right. that down. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So again, the, the improved performance in this case may be due to that increased central drive may be due to heightened motivation combination thereof. But in both cases, the stimulation, this ties to a stimulation of reward centers or pleasure centers in the brain, something that's termed dopaminergic or serotonergic effect. And, and basically, we're, we're talking about lowering RPE, really. I, I can't mm-hmm. really see it any other way. And, and also, perhaps, increased motor excitability in the brain. And, and most of this, much of this, points to the potential performance enhancement via neural instead of metabolic mechanisms, at least in these shorter intense events. You know, we're, only, we're only confining this to you know, roughly an hour at this point. Um, so cool. When it doesn't, when this, when this broke down was when they would uh, kind of muddy the waters with pre-feeding. But even then, they found that in, in that review, there it is, 15 mouth rinse, mouth rinse studies. So that review looked at 15 different studies, and they found that the best time trial time came about as a combination of a high-carbohydrate meal two to three hours prior and rinses over the, course of the, over the course of the meal. So again, yeah, you may be able to gut out that early morning workout without carbohydrate, but you might be able to make it a little bit better with carbohydrate. <clears throat> okay, so the, it's also worth pointing out that there are obviously and will always be some some still unknowns. Right now, mouth dwell time. You know, how long do you have to swish it before it makes this impact? Mouth feel phenomenon. Turns out our mouths are really good at determining what we should ingest, what we should spit out, what's going to do positive things for our muscles or our brain just by being in the mouth. Um, placebo effect is always in play. We can never, never discount the placebo effect. And then uh, kind of a minor point, but the difference between sweet receptors and carbohydrate receptors, we're sometimes called polysaccharide receptors. And that's what I've talked about with, uh, with amaltodextrin. I mean, there's a difference between sensing sweetness and sensing carbohydrate. Um, we, we know that rats can discern between these. Humans, however, still unknown. So the overall takeaway here is that Exercise for weight loss, um, train low tactics, whether you're trying to avoid GI distress for short events or, or pre, pre-breakfast workouts, carbohydrate mouth rinsing is at least worth a shot. And I say that because, first off, there's no evidence to a downside as of yet. There's no negative effects on performance, so why not give it a shot? And also, the performance benefits were observed even in athletes who were carbohydrate replete. They hadn't run down, and they still saw benefit from swishing carbohydrate. <laughs> 
Yeah. Speaking of the unknowns, I'm really curious because you met, you mentioned this in passing earlier, but you mentioned um, the potential importance of carbohydrate interacting with the gut. And given how much mm. we're learning at such a rapid pace about the gut microbiome, I wonder if there's some connection there too, that would be really, really interesting because they have shown that elite level athletes have a very distinctly different gut microbiome to non-elite mm -hmm. athletes, which it just, it begs the question. Somebody oh, get on that, please. I absolutely <laughs> yeah. wonder the same thing. I mean, at this point, I consider the, the gut a physiological black box. I mean, yeah. we, we know what goes into it, but we don't know the effects that come out of it. And man, there's, there's, there's a lot to, to unpack there for sure. Yeah. Okay, so now let's briefly talk about, because you asked about uh, the impact of these uh, sweeteners on fasted training. Um, so first, why fasting? Why fasted training? And I'm just going to paraphrase Ron Mon again. This is something that's done in the pursuit of a set of coordinated metabolic changes designed to spare carbohydrate and increase our reliance on fat as an energy source. We're simply trying to shift the balance there, or at least the capabilities. Two athlete concerns with these non-nutritive sweeteners and their impact on fasting, as I see it, is fat loss and aerobic signaling. I think that's pretty much what you're asking, Dustin. So these can both be viewed in terms of increases in blood sugar and, and perhaps increases in insulin as a result. So when it comes to the fat loss end of things, insulin release can blunt lipolysis. We know this, it's, it's a fair concern. To kind of, uh, one example, so they did a sham feeding experiment uh, 20-ish years ago, where they actually chewed the food, didn't swallow it. So they basically engaged that whole cephalic phase of insulin release. Just by having food in your mouth, insulin starts to be released from the pancreas, make its way into the bloodstream. And what they found was just by chewing it, not swallowing it, spitting it back out, it elevated plasma insulin levels 250% over baseline. Whether or not non-nutritive sweeteners can do this, eh, some sweeteners do ha or have exhibited an impact on insulin levels. Some not so much. Stevia appears to have a really minimal effect on it, if any effect at all. Hmm. So, Deno. As far as the aerobic signaling, non-nutritive sweeteners, you know, the question is, do they raise blood glucose levels? Do they turn off that catabolic signaling that we're relying upon to spur those aerobic adaptations? Mm -hmm. a, a recent, pretty recent, just a few years ago, a systematic review and meta-analysis of only randomized controlled trials, hard no. So their findings said that basically non-nutritive sweeteners were not found to elevate blood glucose. This is not to imply all is well with non-nutritive sweeteners. I'm not saying go crazy. They're, they're, they're good mm -hmm. for you by no means. I'm simply saying they don't impact blood glucose levels. Um, and also these studies are not conducted on, on athletes. So take it with that particular grain of salt. And athletes right. by and large have higher insulin sensitivity. We commonly utilize rather than store sugar. And then even when it comes to real sugar in a carbohydrate rinse, there was one study that showed that it didn't affect plasma insulin levels during a time trial. So hmm. this, this just shines a light on the fact that working muscles behave differently. So yeah. you can't take all this to mean uh, anything other than... <clears throat> Yeah. Anyway, so I also want to point out that there are some limitations with this particular meta. They they looked at non-nutritive sweeteners alone. So the assumption being, I guess, that it's coming from a can of soda and they're not eating it with or consuming it with anything else. So it's not part of what's termed a food matrix. Typically, these sweeteners are going to make their way into our bodies in the accompaniment of something else. They only looked at them entirely on their own. They only looked at them in fasted subjects. They didn't look at any subjects with any form of metabolic disorder. They didn't look at obese subjects. And as we talked about, they, they didn't account for the gut hormone impact. 
So it does have it, it have its limitations. Mm. Yeah. I also just wonder where <coughs> Dustin's question is coming from. Like why Coke mm-hmm. Zero, you know? Um, <laughs> no, I mean, just like, yeah. I, I, yeah. Yeah. Like, are you, are you trying to lose weight and trying to like cut calories out that way? Yeah. Do you want a source of caffeine that's like not coffee because you don't like coffee? Um, it's, yeah, I would, I just wonder why Coke Zero and why a soda? Um, and I'm not a nutritionist or a scientist, but I just, I, I wouldn't drink soda or um, something to that effect enough to where I would consider whether or not or how it was affecting my energy systems. Like soda is not meant to nourish us. And I think that's Mm -hmm. kind of important to keep in mind about the things we eat and drink when we are athletes um, is what it's meant to do. Amber nutrition queen about nourishment. Like, you know, (laughs) we should consider whether this stuff is nourishing us and what our purpose is in drinking it. And if like, you're just trying to get sugar or like you have a sweet tooth. And, um, I mean like at Chad's aforementioned research, like Coke zero is not going to satiate that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's Maybe almost like soda. a, <clears throat> yeah, it's like a, it's like a placeholder. I feel like in a lot of diets that a lot of people have and, and, the, and like, as we've already covered here, the, they are designed to not give us the benefit, but then all to, to trick our bodies into thinking that it needs it. A lot of the time it's tricky. So, but yeah, super think, interesting. I've always wondered this imp- as well, because some oh, drink mixes come with artificial sweeteners within them. I don't know if y'all have noticed that, but like they have them within there and everything else. Whenever I see that, I'm always like, I'm just going to keep mixing my sugar and or my glucose and my fructose together. Like I don't need to, <laughs> I don't need to have the fake stuff, um, in there. So uh, so it's, it's something, you know, check out the labels on everything that you have, not saying that we have to somehow go on some sort of crusade against artificial sweeteners, but this <laughs> just proves the fact that it's not giving us the performance benefit that we may assume. It's not like mm-hmm. it's, it's not like it fools our body into thinking that it's sugar and somehow we get a performance benefit. So, right. That's a super interesting observation in, in Chad's deep dive, but to, to Ivy's point, I think probably the more important thing is if you don't, if, if something is, if something about your intake of this is not, is making you feel not great, that's probably the most important takeaway from this. And to look at that and, and try something else. Sometimes if you feel like, so I'll, I'll share an example. My husband used to just love Coke zero. I mean, to the point where, and he, he used it for work cause he, he's in a really mentally in, you know demanding job. And so he needed a lot of intense mental focus over a long period of time. So he really liked having the, the Coke zero and he liked the flavor. It wasn't specifically because, you know, he was trying to cut calories or anything, but he needed something that was caffeinated that he could sip on throughout the day to just kind of keep his, his mind sharp but he started, he started feeling awful. I mean, to be fair, he was probably drinking almost two liters a day for a long time. So it was very extreme, (laughs) but you know, so he, he got to a point where he just, he really didn't feel good. And once you've embedded that kind of a deeply ingrained habit, it's really hard to break. So instead of breaking the habit, what we did was we replaced it. So we started brewing up home batches of iced tea. So he would have a home batch of iced tea that we would make with honey. So he'd have the caffeine. It would be lightly flavored, um, a little bit of, you know, sweetness. And it was, it was something that he could sip on. So he'd take a huge batch of that with him to work every day and he'd sip on that throughout the day. So it was a lot easier for him to move away from the thing that was 
really making him feel crummy uh, without having to go through that kind of cold turkey brutality of having to break a deeply ingrained habit. So I think the question to ask yourself is, is this something that's making me feel really good and is, is really, you know, bringing benefit to my life? And if it's not, if it's something that's making you feel kind of crummy, then, you know, experiment again, just experiment, see if, you know, see if there's something else that, that might, be something that you could, re- you could replace with, replace it with for a little while and see if you feel better. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Great tips. Let's stay on the path of nutrition for our last question from Paul he says, what's the best way to consume calories throughout the day? Let's say I consume 3000 calories in a given day. Does it make a difference if I consume three meals of 1000 calories each? He mentions three Popeye's chicken sandwiches and fries, right? Nate. <laughs> uh, then he <laughs> says also versus consuming the 3000 calories throughout the day with smaller meals and snacks. I guess this question pertains to all situations, off days, the time leading up to evening training, post-ride and pre-ride. So Paul, I think that what you'd like from this question is for us to tell you what to eat on Monday and how that's different than what you need to eat on Tuesday and so on throughout the week. And we're not going to do that. Instead, we're going to adhere more to principles. Uh, is that, is that correct, Amber? Yeah. I think whenever you're asking the question is, you know, what's the best way to do this thing? It's important to step back and remember that there's a lot of different things that you could be optimizing for. So in this case, what are you optimizing for? Are you trying to figure out what's best for performance, for glycogen replenishment, for body composition, muscle protein synthesis, appetite, satiety, circadian rhythm, energy, mood, microbiome, inflammation, immunity. I mean, we could go on, right? So there's no one right answer to this where we can say, here's the prescriptive way, you know, things that you should eat at these times for what, you know, cause, cause what's best for you also is not necessarily going to be best for the person next to you. Um, from a principle standpoint, one of the things I like to do is just to kind of apply some general principles that can be applied flexibly. So as an example, I always make sure that I have carbohydrate before, during, and after my training ride and how much that is. It's, it's flexible because it depends on what, you know, what I'm doing in my workout that day, how intense it is, how long I'm riding. If it's a really long ride, I'm always really good about eating at regular intervals during my ride. So if I'm doing a four hour ride, I'm going to end up eating more because I'm eating at those regular intervals during the ride. I'm always really good about having a recovery shake at the end of my workout. So I make sure that I've fueled for the performance that day, my workout, and then off the bike, I can, I can say, okay, you know, I've, I nailed my nutrition for my workout. So I fuel the performance and I've set myself up for optimal recovery. That box is checked. And then the rest of the day, I can focus on eating foods that are nutrient dense, that are really nourishing because the rest of your day needs fuel too, right? Like you need to show up with your full self for the people in your life. You need to show up with your full self for, for work, for career, for your family. And that takes energy. And the food that you eat is going to affect the energy that you bring to everything else you do in your life. It's going to affect your mood. So are you showing up with joy and enthusiasm for your family? Are you feeling really broken down? I mean, so, so thinking about the types of foods that, um, really genuinely nourish you in, in terms of sustainable energy, elevating mood. And that's a lot easier said than done. And I know that it can be the case that folks just end up in, like a cycle of bad habits that can really kind of derail you in terms of tuning into what foods really, really work for you. Um, tuning into when you really genuinely are hungry and it's a hunger signal versus, um, reaching for something out of habit. And, uh, one of a really effective way of kind of 
calibrating this, if you will, is to use a food journal and you can do this without counting calories and you can just write down what you eat and you can note to yourself, how did I feel while I was eating this? Was it enjoyable? Did it feel nourishing? Did, was it palatable? Did I feel, did I feel satiated after I ate it? And then how long until you genuinely feel hungry again? Or, you know, when you next feel hungry, what are the circumstances surrounding that? Is it something that's kind of a, an external signal? Like, well, I just finished this shift and that's usually when I have this snack. And so my body was expecting this snack. So is it a habit or is it really hunger? And then, you know, you can start to identify some maybe emotional or environmental triggers and start teasing out what, you know, what's really a a signal from your body versus what might be affecting you, you know, externally. Um, and that kind of clarity is, is just unbelievably powerful, but it can take time depending on where you are. Mm. This is another question too, where it kind of depends on if you're an average person or an athlete, and if you were to look into studies, this is the hard part. Chad just mentioned it with the study on, on artificial sweeteners and everything else. That's a very important asterisk to keep there. If you're listening to this podcast, chances are you're considered an athlete, like not a normal person uh, in the sense that you have a consistent output. You're doing work. You're following something that every day your body is in the habit of doing some sort of work. <clears throat> As a result, a lot of the time, the recommendations that we'll hear, it's like, it's better to eat a bunch of small meals or it's better to do this. Mm-hmm. You always have to look at where that study is coming from in terms of who they're actually testing. What were the circumstances? What were they measuring for? Uh, because it, it really depends since you're an athlete and you're going through this sort of thing, you really have to adhere to principles, uh, because this is so individual. And the cool part is since you have an actual measurable output, in other words, what you're doing for work, that makes it so that principles are really easy to apply. If you don't have anything like that, then you're just kind of stuck. And if your life isn't demanding in any way of that, then it's really tough. So Amber, I just want to echo what you said one more time. It's so important. You got this question right here of how do I have nutrient timing? When do I eat and what's the best time to eat? And it's all about driving performance and nutrient and nutrients and making sure mm-hmm. that what you're getting is sufficient for your life. We're not just talking about performance on the bike. We're talking about performance in general, and that's just such an important thing. So yeah, that, that, um, I, I guess just to share anecdote, my breakfast is usually something that is pretty normal. I'm usually somewhere around 500 to 600 calories for a breakfast. And then after that, when I get, I train in the afternoon, my lunch is much more carb centric and it's larger. I train, I fuel throughout my workout. I have recovery nutrition right after. And then usually in the evenings, that's when I will have a smaller or something that it's not a huge meal because I just simply don't need it uh, before I go to bed. But it's, it's really all about driving the performance. I have to eat that breakfast in the morning because I have to perform at work. And if I'm starving and I'm foggy brained, I'm not going to be performing at work. So, um, yeah, super, I just really want to applause Amber for taking that approach to to answering this one. That was great. Uh, what do you you have other points to, to share on here? Uh, I, I want to defer to Ivy and chat on this. Cool. Yeah. I'm on my own personal journey of (laughs) trying to eat enough, which sounds silly, but like eating early enough and often enough throughout the day has been really challenging for me. Like, I feel like there's something wrong with my like brain to hunger signals where like, I don't get signals that I'm hungry and basically realized that for a number of months I was 
like borderline catabolic eating less than a thousand calories a day sometimes like pretty often because I just didn't know that I was, I didn't feel like I was hungry and I was busy and I just, I didn't know any better. (laughs) Well, I knew better, but, um, so for Paul, you know, I would advise that, um, Amber's given some great framework on identifying what you need individually. Um, but proper nutrition is a practice. Once you identify that stuff, it's not like you're just going to flip a light switch and be like, today's the day that I start eating more and better. Like it's really hard and it, and it has to do with, you know, your, your tastes and like what you prefer. Like, um, it's going to be really difficult to work towards where you want to be nutritionally. And it's important to be like gentle with yourself and not, you know, beat yourself up. Like it's easy for me to beat myself up when I forget to eat enough or, um, keep track of it and don't do enough. Um, it's mm. really important to understand that it's a super long process and just the same as any physiological change that you make. Um, and you might feel like if you're like me and you have a hard time eating enough, like I feel like I'm forcing myself, like I make myself borderline sick sometimes, but it's super important. And now like it's easier for me to hit those calorie marks that I need um, because I understood that it was a process and it's going to be rough at first. So mm. Be gentle with yourself, Paul. Yeah. Awesome. Chad, do you have anything to share on this one? Uh, <clears throat> just briefly, I'll kind of re- uh, tag along to what you guys have all pointed to is that we're athletes and we're a, we're a different segment of the population. We have different demands and that kind of handles itself to some extent. But as Ivy just pointed out, it's it's really hard to get detached from what our energy requirements are. And the, the term energy balance is it's pretty buzzy right now, but it, it describes what we're up against. I mean, we we output a lot of energy. We have to replace that. It comes at some consequence somewhere. Maybe it doesn't affect performance right away, but it'll affect something. It's typically a negative effect. Um, and that if you're not an athlete, man, the, the, there are no real rules. The, 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 most of the research supports that it doesn't matter what your eating pattern is, at least not for body composition and, and fat loss. And Amber mm-hmm. linked to a study in here too, that says you can, and I, I chuckle every time I hear this term, but you can adopt a snake diet, right? Where you eat once a day, you get all those 3000 calories in a single diet. And you just let your body kind of make use of it over the course of the rest of the day. You can eat 3,100 calorie Type meals. Neither of those yeah. things are really going to have a big impact on, on, on body comp and, and uh, fat loss. Right. But they that. might have a huge impact on your mood oh, or sure, on a lot energy of availability during the day. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead, Jonathan. I was just going to say, I did that out of uh, necessity when I was in Chile uh, during my mission, because we, people were kind enough to feed us every once in a while, but we didn't have any money to pay for anything. So, so (laughs) I wouldn't eat breakfast. Uh, They don't eat dinner in that country, really, at least where we were. So instead they just usually eat a big lunch. So I just ate a gigantic, I was a snake for two years, basically. I just (laughs) ate a big old lunch and that was it. So uh, you can learn to make do. Did I change that as soon as I was able to? A hundred percent. So, um, it, but it is really important to stay in tune with your body. And like Ivy said, to kind of have a system of checks and balances, cause you can lose perspective on it. Um, yeah, can we just I, cover Oh yeah, please Amber, go ahead. I just wanted to one follow up thought. I think that a lot of what we read in terms of the science in just mainstream internet feeds relates a lot to, um, people who lead sedentary lifestyles who are at risk for heart disease and metabolic disorder, because these are 
these are genuinely very pervasive problems. And so these are the messages and the studies and the recommendations that we get inundated with on a daily basis. And it's important to rem- remember, it might not apply to you. And it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's easy to forget that because it just be, it's like osmosis. It's just constantly there. And it's hard to remind yourself that it's not necessarily you. And I think that a lot of people as a result of that, just assume that they need to lose weight and that they need to cut calories and fair enough. There are definitely people who do absolutely. But like Ivy just pointed out, which I think is so important is that there are people who are already under fueling who would do well to bring on more. And it's hard that that sounds so counter counterintuitive when you're swimming in this constant stream of messaging about diet more, exercise more, eat less. And it's not always going to be the thing that's going to make you feel better and perform better. So I, I just, I just want to put that out there because I think that that's a really, really common misconception and you have to be really honest about where you are and what it is that's going to make you feel better. And that's, that's where that food journal can potentially be a really helpful tool. Just to reinforce that tying back to what Chad just said, there's a big difference mm-hmm. between average people and athletes. And what we see from our perspective is that athletes more often than not have the problem of under fueling. Whereas the general population, that's not what we're focusing on. And we're not speaking to the general population. We're speaking to all of us here. So, um, Mm -hmm. let's answer just a handful of live questions. It'll be really quick. We haven't done it in forever. Um, and we'll be able to handle them really fast. So, uh, first one's from Tyler. He says, does trainer road have plans to, uh, to open up a swag store? I really want to get one of those get faster mugs. No plans to do that. Uh, we get lots of requests for that. Uh, athletes, some podcast guests, they get these fancy mugs. It's a, it's a special thing. So if you ever see us at events, whenever events happen again, we also generally have swag with us so you can get some items then. Uh, next one's from Terry. Terry's basically asking as a master's racer is plan builder too intense. And I'm going to forward you right back to the discussion that we had last week with Chad's fantastic deep dive on what actually is potentially harming performance, uh, or what holds you back. Is it age? And is that the case? He covered a, a bunch of stuff in great detail. So Terry, please check that out. Um, and then the last one, uh, this one's from Will says my main fitness goal is to qualify for the Boston marathon. How do I work in consistent cycling or using trainer road while not compromising my running workouts? I think there's 10,000 wills or will you just make up different names and send in this question to the podcast all the time. Cause I feel like I read this question all the time. And so anyways, the, you got to prioritize, uh, if you're really focused on Boston, then focus on that and do your run training there. Uh, don't let your cycling training start to get up to the point where it's increasing any sort of excess fatigue. If you still care about cycling and want to do that just the same, then you just have to prioritize. That's the key. You just, it's, it's all about priorities. Chad, do you have any other insight on that one? No, that about covers it. I mean, you can, you can also approach it from the perspective that, uh, anything you do on the bike should benefit you as a runner. And, and mm-hmm. if at any point it stops doing that, then you know you need to readdress the issue. Exactly right. Great. Thanks everybody for joining us this week. Thanks hosts for putting in so much work and, and, and sharing everything that you shared this week. It's awesome. You got so, it. uh, if you're listening to this podcast, go to trainerroadcom slash podcast, submit the questions that you have this week, including the absolutely essential and the need to answer, uh, rapid fire questions that we need to talk about, like fake apocalyptic scenarios, please, uh, send Duh. in more of those. Those are fantastic. <laughs> Beers with chat questions. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Beers with Chad questions. <laughs> Let's basically Send those in. Sneak them in there. We don't have another Beers with Chad 
Like, I think that the amount of work that I do would be halved by just fielding beers with Chad's questions. <laughs> so like, stir with the rabbit fire. <laughs> yep. Ivy is our community, uh, is our community manager. So if, on Instagram, if you're talking to Trainer Road, in most cases, you're talking to Ivy or on the forum. There's a lot of when is beers with Chad coming back uh, talk. So this must stop every week. At some fire. point. At some point. Yeah. Bring it into rapid fire. So do that. Uh, check out, go to trainerroad.com and sign up to get faster and check out the successful athletes podcast. And we will talk to you all next week. Thanks everybody. Take care. Thanks everybody. Bye everybody.